Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Kari. I'm your host, Kari Feiler. In today's episode, I talk with my friend, Carl. We discuss basic income, free will, varied social systems, their benefits and effects, and their pain points, the corrupting presence of big money in politics, the problem of Antifa, woke and wokeness, uh, the Enumerate Elish, the Judeo-Christian relationship, culturally, cognitively, ideologically, simulation theory and its consequences, the power of choice, and other topics. This podcast is supported by a Patreon. If you head over to patreon.com forward slash Kari underscore Filer, you can support it there. I hope you enjoy the show. Start us recording. Uh, thank you for coming on, Carl. Um, I remember us being co-tutors at the tutoring center. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. We both worked at the, the tutoring center at our junior college. And uh, I was mainly working on the front desk because I was taking those classes that not a lot of people took, those philosophy classes, and a little bit of maths. That's all I was tutoring. Mm, mm. Yeah. Yeah. And we just... <laughs> I guess we would lean in. Or I remember leaning in after having maybe not having a tutor and just talking about anything that would land on our minds and being able to engage deeply about whatever. Uh, and I truly appreciate that. Please uh, catch me up. What's, what's been your trajectory since uh, since college, since undergrad or that part of undergrad? Since un- yeah, well, it's been not traditional. I don't know if you remembered my education beforehand, but... Definitely not taking the standard route. I uh, I transferred from City College to a university, but I ended up dropping out. Okay. And I joined the military after that. Oh, 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 oh. I'm watching some dogs right now. You're Sorry fine. About that. This is a canine friendly show. Mine is going to bark at least twice. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, uh, I dropped out of university and then I went to the military oh, and wow. joined the army. Mm-hmm. How, and what was what year was that? That was in 2016. 16. So we were very much engaged uh, in Afghanistan, Iraq, and wherever else they might have sent you. Did you do any tours? Uh, no, no deployments to the Middle East. Um, I got assigned to PACOM, so the Pacific. Okay. And I wasn't in a combat arms MOS, so I didn't see any of that kind of activity. I was actually... A mechanic for a few years and i'm i'm transitioning into a medical job within the army hmm. but right now i'm sort of just in training okay okay i've got a cousin who was a um mechanic in the air force uh, and i've got another cousin who was a what did he, he was some sort of munitions engineer in the navy uh, another cousin who saw fighting uh, in the army and another cousin who was a nurse uh, in the Navy. And so I, I have, there's a lot of military in my family as well. Uh, thank you for your service. Oh, no problem. No problem. I, I never know what to say when people say that. Uh, sorry if that came off a little awkward. <laughs> no, no, there's no, there's no, your response was the best, right? Uh, yeah. You know, it's really just about, I, I think it's about civilians recognizing that joining the military is a great sacrifice. Uh, and it's a sacrifice for all of us civilians. Uh, and so it's important for us to to be grateful whenever we can. I just say thank you for your service. And there's, I don't think there's any one response is better than another. 
Yeah, my uh, the first couple of times I heard that actually, because I heard thank you, my immediate response was always you're welcome. But like <laughs> in that context, it comes off a little strange. Yeah, yeah, and I, did it for I think you. The very, yeah, the very first time it was uh, right after basic training. Uh, we were at a I think it was a steak and shake. Mm. Never been to one before, mm. and the people there in Georgia they were so nice. They just paid for us. And said thank you for your service, and I'm like, oh, you're welcome. And I'm like, oh, wait a second. That felt That's, a little odd. It's not like it's not like I mowed their lawn for them without asking. It was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I get it. I get it. Uh, yeah, it's great stuff. Thank man. you, thank you for the appreciation, and uh, I always do appreciate the uh, the support whenever I get it, whether it's a simple thank you like that and recognition, or you know, buying me a burger at Steak and Shake. It's it's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to do it. Um, what's been your evolution of philosophy since undergrad? Oof, this has been kind of a, a crazy one. What do you remember from me talking in City College? Do you remember, I remember sort of what I was thinking? You being one of the, you being a thoughtful libertarian. Uh, and that yes. was somebody that's so, uh, I, I hopefully I can, can divulge what region we went to undergrad is that okay yeah that's fine so um, southern california that's as, as specific as i need to get um so we went okay. to undergrad in southern california so a thoughtful libertarian is a minority i'm talking two percent three percent people that are willing to defend their views and that's what i remember think oh wow here's a guy who's actually thought about his positions they aren't the politically correct status quo <laughs> so i was, yeah, I was so happy not. to engage <laughs> i was so happy to engage yeah that's what i remember yeah and that's that's definitely where i got um growing up in in socal and going through high school there uh, i i kind of landed as a default liberal socialist type hmm. uh and that was without putting any real thought into it, mm. uh, without really reading it. It was just sort of what I picked up from friends, mm -hmm. from teachers in high the school, zeitgeist. that kind of thing. Exactly. I was just picking up on the spirit of the day. Exactly. And when I got to City College and was actually encouraged to think and do a little stuff on my own, that's when I came to libertarianism because it just seemed from a, like a principled standpoint to be the most defensible and logical way to go about it and mm. yes that's that's very accurate for how i was all the way through university i would say mm. um right now i don't know if i i'm pretty confident actually that i wouldn't call myself a libertarian okay and reading about different um forms philosophies of government uh i would definitely say I'm slipping back more into the authoritarian side of things as mm. opposed to libertarianism mm. just because I, I found myself attracted to, liber to libertarianism because of the, the society that it would produce. Like if you considered it in a vacuum, what kind of, like what would a libertarian society look like? And that seemed like the best way to go about things, the best good for the most people. Um, it would allow people to flourish, but in the current political climate we have here in America, what I saw the Libertarian Party doing and what I saw libertarians that were higher profile doing on the internet, mostly um, their discussions, I didn't see them pushing society towards in a good direction. Um, hmm. I, from the lowest levels of libertarian debate online, I saw things that I found reprehensible, like conversations about lowering age of consent to really, or eliminating it, 
to like really low ages or eliminating it. And mm. like that, maybe you can make a principled argument about that and kind of defend that position. But when I saw the people who were making those arguments and the other things that they were saying, it sort of just seemed like they were trying to justify some tendencies that they had. Mm-hmm. I can't like make accusations on specific people, but that's just how it came off. And it, it that I'm sure you have a visceral reaction to things like that as well. That's pretty common. And that's sort of kind of like questioned that opened up questioning the libertarian movement as a whole. Mm. And then I looked at the historical, I guess, efficacy of the libertarian party in America. And that kind of distanced me from the movement, like just how they've handled elections. And I, I know the the system here, it's, it's a two party system and there's not really a lot of room for third parties, but it didn't seem like an effective vehicle for, again, improving society and pushing it in a direction that's good for everyone. Uh, that being said, I'm definitely not Republican or Democrat. <laughs> mm. uh, I don't think either of those parties um, are pushing the country in a good direction. And I think, oh, easy, buddy. And I think if you look at either of the dominant political parties and you sort of do a Venn diagram, see what direction they're moving and see where they agree broadly in action, not necessarily speech, mm-hmm. but what both the, the Democrats and the Republicans do once they get into office, once they get into power, it's pretty revealing about what the the agenda is, the direction of the country is. And I don't think that's good for most people. What do you think constitutes that overlap between big Dems and big, big reps? Oh yeah. Red and blue team, red team blue. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say social programs. I've, I've evolved on social programs too. I don't think that we should you know, cut welfare out altogether or eliminate social security or any of those things, which are like libertarian positions. Um, I don't think that the, the payouts that the governments are providing are actually helping anyone at the same time. So that could be kind of interpreted as libertarian. I don't think that they're encouraging laziness so much as they are giving people payouts as a form of incentive for voting, they're not trying to actually help them. Hmm. And you can kind of see that when you have like a bigger picture view, you get welfare payouts and benefits if you make below a certain income. But once you reach that income, you have to start paying in. Mm -hmm. And then that puts you at a position where you're making, you're overall benefiting less from the situation. And like, I know that that really does sound like a libertarian position, but it doesn't make sense to me that like you're 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 making it harder for people to improve themselves while you're helping them, and that leads to problems like people taking advantage of the system, people giving up on working more, people aren't incentivized to save uh, with the way that the overall financial picture and the economy is set up too. It's more tailored towards just as much growth as possible, not trying to help people in less good positions kind of bring themselves out of things. But it's more than you know, happy to help banks and huge corporations get out of trouble. And that's something you see on both the left and the right is sort of like the corporate welfare side of things. How, um, would, you seen... see oh, us, how would you see us save 
more? Uh, that's a question that when I wrestle with it, I never really make any satisfactory progress. How oh, do you're not the only one. I'm, yeah. I'm not entirely sure myself. Um, I've seen some interesting ideas more from the Democrats than the Republicans on that. I, on that, I think um, some of the, the candidates that don't actually make it onto the ballot for the presidential election. Um, Yang, Andrew Yang, he had the idea of universal basic income, I'm, which would... I'm a huge Yang gang, been Yang gang yeah. the whole time. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I donated a little bit to him in Tulsi, actually. Tulsi because of her uh, anti-war, anti-interventionist pol- uh, policies, mm. and uh, Yang because of the, the UBI idea. Um, I don't know how that would work here. Um, I think it's an interesting idea, and I think it makes a little more sense than the way that the progressive taxing and progressive... Um, uh, welfare distribution scheme is working now. Yeah. UBI, I think, it's worth I a think try. is actually a step away from saving, but it, it asks the question, well, we don't have to have people save if we can set up a system that guarantees that money will flow. You know, we know how much money is in the system. So if we set up a way right. that all economic activity is re- is funneled or, or redistributed through the bottom, then the poorest yes. people don't have to save because they exactly. know that they've got this income, and it's or they can, yeah, it's, yeah, it's they a can side save for of the forcing want. them to save question. Um, yep, yep. In an interesting side care of those bases. It, yeah, it is. And I, again, I'm not a, a poli sci major. Um, I'm sort of just an armchair philosopher. Always have been. And the idea of the trickle up economics versus the trickle down makes more sense to me if you're actually speaking to people who are voting for you who are actually going to benefit why would you want things to trickle down through multiple layers of bureaucracy and and uh, corporations and banks and all the the graft that can happen there why wouldn't you want the economic activity driven from the consumer and have people's needs taken care of i don't see how that wouldn't benefit the top how it wouldn't benefit the businesses, how it wouldn't benefit the banks. There would be more activity, economically speaking. And again, people's basic essentials would be covered. I think the, the most common like counter to that would be the, um, the inflation. But mm. I mean, the currency has been devalued through our financial, like through the Fed, through the financial schemes that the government's been doing for decades. And the value of the dollar has dropped but you can still afford things. I, I think that them doing anything that increases the money supply is going to inflate the currency. That's kind of how it works from my understanding. Yeah, and so for, for when, them to when just, I push back against the inflation part of UBI, I say, yeah, it's gonna create crazy inflation if you print the if you print the checks, if you just print the dollars, yeah, it's gonna create crazy inflation. You have to oh, you yeah. have to recapture revenue. You have to close the tax loopholes, you have to add add a VAT or something mm-hmm. like this. You take money yep. that's in the system you add a transaction tax on Wall Street. So you take money that's in the system and it's it's redistribution, which for a lot of uh, libertarians and conservatives is, is absolutely a swear word. If you say redistribution, mm-hmm. uh, it yep. is that it is redistribution. And but that's how you keep the inflation off because um, you don't you don't print the dollars. <laughs> if you print them, that's bad news. Yeah. You can't just do the one thing. It, it would be a comprehensive mm-hmm. approach to it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah, I don't think that's something that's going to be tried just because the bulk of the people that would benefit from that aren't the ones who are paying for the campaigns and reelections of the politicians. 
that that's what it comes down to and that that opens up a whole nother can of worms how do you solve that problem and get politicians to represent the people they say they represent but really are representing the people who pay for them to get elected are you a follower of Jenk Uger and TYT at all and Annika Sperry. Oh yeah, the Young Turks. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I I try to get a little bit of everything. Uh, I've seen them. They're when was the last time I watched some of his stuff? It was probably the election, probably the last election when I was watching that. Well, they um, go really hard on getting the big money out, right? Because you asked the question of how do we how do we recapture our elected representatives' interests. Uh, and their argument, and this has been the, the core of their argument, we have to get the big money out. We've legalized corruption so that now mm-hmm. we 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 don't even see it because it's legal, right? Because lobbying mm-hmm. is legal and obscene com- running uh, limitless, bottomless commercial money pits and big uh, packs is legal. That's corruption. That's Those are corrupt activities saying, oh, I've got I've got a. Uh, $10 million that I'm willing to run on ads for you and not your opponent if you're willing to support me after the chips fall. That's e- that's corrupt. <laughs> but we've legalized it. Uh, and so oh, it's yeah. hard for us to to see it or for the common American to see it as corruption. And that's been one of the cores of their platform. And I'm grateful for what they do in that specific regard. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I remember their critiques of that going into the um the primaries the democratic mm. primaries and they're they're always hot fire when they're they're talking about that but being you know they they do eventually align behind the democratic candidate um another problem with our political system sometimes you're not voting for you're voting against mm. Mm. and i think that plays into the the structure of the two-party system that gets people to align into camps and ultimately elect people that are easy to control by those financial interests that's that's one of the components of it. It's really it's really a shame. Now I wonder if basic income conflicts with uh, is it Penty? This is a thinker that you just turned me on to. Penty, oh yes, my avatar, Penty Lincola. Penty Lincola. What would Penty Lincola say about basic income? Oh, I don't think he'd be in favor of it at all. Mm. Um, uh, did you get a chance to read anything about him? I I read just the Wikipedia, and then I listened to about thirty minutes of him talk. So just a just the okay. most surface was level he, introduction he, you can get. Yeah, was he was he older in the talk? Um, yes, he was older. He, he was a little bit older softened. than both of them. He softened in his age and mm. uh, reconnected with God, and he had sort of an evolution on that. When he was younger, um, he. I guess you could call him a deep ecologist. I think that's what they call him on the Wikipedia page, actually. Hmm. But uh, his perspective on the world and all the organisms on it as a complex ecosystem where everything has a relationship to another, plants, animals, including us. um, He has a quote somewhere. He has a few really good quotes, actually, but... He, if he, he said something like, if I could press a button and eliminate more than half the population of the world right now, he would do it yeah. without hesitation. Himself included. Himself included. <laughs> That's one of yeah, the he, things I read, yeah. Yeah, he would, he would have no hesitation on that. Yeah. And he, he sees the, the rampant growth that we've experienced, I guess, since the Industrial Revolution. So he, he agrees with the, uh, the Unabomber, with Ted Kaczynski on that one. 
uh, the, the industrial revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for mankind, but mm. not just for mankind, for the, the entire ecosystem of the world. Mm. Uh, I think that UBI would be something he definitely would not be in favor of, mm. just because it would encourage that economic activity. It would mm -hmm. allow people, the majority of people, to have the means to have more children, mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. to uh, be able to pay for those children to lead better lives and have a higher standard of living. Mm -hmm. There would be efficiencies that come along the way, but that would ultimately lead to more consumption. And I don't think that's something he would be in favor of at all. Yep. Yep. That makes, that makes sense. So yeah, I'm, that's, I'm actually, that's where he gets. I'm yeah. for, uh, so my, my deepest idea in this regard is that I think the human species, um, now this is, I'm going to put it in the most whimsical way. I'm not, I'm not hardcore on this, uh, but just a fun way of imagining, right? I'm not putting out a scientific theory. This is just a fun way of imagining. Okay. All right. Imagine that there is a species of alien or God or whatever you want to call them um, that that share the same ultimate creator God as us. That is to say that the, they have a God in their world that is the ultimate source of everything. And that is also the same ultimate God as ours. They're just an intermediate level of gods. And they're the ones that have created this universe. And they're doing an experiment. They're going, okay, we've got this magic dust, and they're gonna, and they they put some energy into the magic dust, and it goes out, bam, and it becomes this whole universe, and probably several universes. And they're trying to see if anything can grow on the magic dust, or, or the, they're trying to see what can grow out of the magic dust. That's the challenge beset to everything that would occur inside of the magic dust. So that our challenge is to survive being drug into the center of the supermassive black hole in the center of our galaxy. That's our challenge, right? And so, and it's going on in every galaxy. So in every galaxy, there's competition amongst all the life forms there of which life form can survive being being sucked into the supermassive black hole. And then after that stage of the evolution of the universe, then those entities will compete with themselves to avoid being dragged into probably an even supermassive, super, supermassive black hole. Uh, but of course that's several generations removed. Oh, but yeah, the reason yeah. I like to think about that way, because that puts us all, that that's a religious idea. There's no falsifying that idea. And, and it's just a belief that one can hold, but if we all, if, if more of us held that idea, it would put us on the same page and it would make the universe itself the common enemy, which I think is a beneficial stance. If you understand asteroids, uh, malevolent aliens, if you understand <laughs> these things as the common enemy, then yeah. we get, we, we, then we need China. <laughs> yeah. We are anti-China. Yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah. You're not wrong. I, I also... Like I think what you're touching on there is a a human unifying principle mm. or ideology, mm. and I think that would be beneficial. Um, I don't know how to. How would you convert? I don't know. How would you get people on board with that? That is interesting, though. I, I think if you could unite. Rules. Yeah, I mean the structure of it would be interesting too. But just to get everybody on that page, when you know it's so hard to. To, to do that yeah no same as same as christianity right christianity yeah, any, lays out any, some rules yep. and says follow these rules people go okay yeah those are great rules to follow and of course they're descended <clears throat> from the uh those rules have to be 
descended from the set of rules. So I believe, uh, I don't know what your stance on it, is I believe that morality comes from our base genetic code. I believe that there is a transcendent morality that's contained in the human genome. Uh, we just don't know how to articulate it yet. Um, that's my current stance. What do you think about morality and its origins? Oh, I, I definitely think that there's something deeper there. I don't know if I could, because I don't have a great understanding of science as you do. Um, yeah, I I think that you, on the observation of the religious tendency of people alone, can, can conclude that. Mm. I would. Mm. Yeah, like you, religions have developed everywhere, and the desire to follow a moral principle, and the, the general structure of what you can and can't do, there's a lot of overlap between different religions. Uh, they're not identical, obviously, but I think if you kind of triangulated in on all the commonalities, you can easily see that that's something that humans just, they want to do it. They, they need to do it. Maybe mm. it is genetic. Maybe it's inside them. Yeah, yeah, it, it certainly... You know, it's I think it was Tolstoy that said that religion, a man's religion is exactly what he does. Right. And of course, this is a, mm -hmm. a, a layman's paraphrase, uh, but it's something like uh, a man's religion is what he does. And so uh, every man is religious. And if you want to understand his religion, just see how he lives every day, because the action, no matter what he says. Right. So if you have someone who's professing belief in the holy trinity and the sanctity of life and then every time he gets alone with the kid he touches him in wrong ways well you obviously don't believe what you say you believe mm -hmm. um, exactly but and the reverse is true someone who says oh i don't believe in anything you say oh you don't believe in anything i don't believe in anything but every day they get up they feed their kids they take care of their crops they take care of their animals they take care they do their job they pay attention to their spouse they they take care of all their responsibilities and then they go to bed with a clear mind well you believe those things you say you don't mm -hmm. believe in anything transcendent but here you are acting out this way of living exactly. uh, of things that you've inherited and so just you know paying attention to to your actions um is actually the core of my philosophy my personal philosophy um it's, my philosophy is centered around choice. I don't think that we, I don't think that there is a, a conflict between free will and determinism. I think that's just a definitional conflict. So some people will still kick around the free will versus determinism debate. Are you familiar with this? I am. Yes. It's probably one of the debates we had. <laughs> yeah, I, I can definitely see that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, I'm at the point where I, I don't think that's a real break i think that's just a definitional problem have you given much more thought to it uh, i have um when discussing free will and these sorts of things it's always important to get into definitions and if you're talking to say a christian person their understanding of free will as a gift from god mm -hmm. that's going to be different than if you're talking to an atheist who maybe has the opposite position that everything is determined uh they're going to see free will as like not a thing from the get-go and mm -hmm. they're going to kind of go off of their material understanding of the the world to justify that mm -hmm. and ultimately yes because it's one of those topics where you do have to basically set up your definitions and those definitions kind of establish your point i do kind of see it as well as like a semantic issue not mm -hmm. really a, where do you land where do I land on uh -huh. that? I do think we have choice. And I mm. think that much like you, our actions prove more than what we say, because mm. you have ostensibly 
holy, good Christian people, Muslim people, Jewish people who do awful things. Mm -hmm. And then you have uh, materialist, atheist, like stereotype. I don't know. What, what's the stereotype for them? Neckbeards and fedora hats, whatever. Sure. Like you got those guys, <laughs> you know, maybe they, they look like that. Maybe they look a little silly. Um, but yeah, they, they get up, they spend time with their families. They have rich relationships with their neighbors. They take care of each other. That's right. There, there are always the, there's like the spectrum in any, any demographic, any group, you've always got those spectrums of people who are actually good and bad based on what they do, what they choose. I love that we can have more positive spin on the, on the term neckbeard. Cause yeah, in, in my, yeah. in my circles, it's entirely derogatory. If, if oh, anyone yeah. had walked into my living room and called me a neckbeard, I don't, my blood would boil. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so I, I love that there's some positive because I mean, Hey, so you don't want a mustache, right? So you want to, so you want to ro- run your chops under your chin, rock on, mm-hmm. right? Rock on. <laughs> um, do you know the origin yeah. of how that became such an insulting term? I think it's a stereotype stemming from online atheist debates and gamers and sort of the, the controversy that those things happened, right? Or is it something else? I don't know. I don't know. All oh, I, you don't all, know? It's always been an insult to me, and I've always yeah. been why. The earliest thing I can remember is the meme, the uh, the overweight, I think, white guy with some acne wearing a fedora hat and a neck beard and like, excuse me, sir, your God does not exist. Prove oh, it. Like like those kinds of memes. Yeah. Like I I don't have the the image pulled up, but if I remember after this, I'll, I'll send it to you. You've probably seen it. I'm googling it right now. Yeah, the the neckbeard um, atheist debater kind of thing, and then that kind of overspilled as memes do into other categories like people debating games, and there was the whole. Uh, I guess that was around 2016 too. Uh, the the GamerGate controversy. I think that was 2016, 2017. That that kind of popped up a lot. That's when it became an insult towards gamers, where they were um, calling the people complaining about video game journalism's uh, journalism's dishonesty. Uh, they were calling them like virgins, basement dwellers, neckbeards. Uh, yeah, that kind of thing. That's when I think it was really popular. Um, I mean, it's still out there, but you just don't see it as much. It's it's a stale meme. Yeah, not fresh. I agree. I totally agree. Uh, yeah, with with free will, I so I think that I think that we that most people. Uh, so this is a disagreement that I have with Sam Harris. I think that most people, if you put them put to them Laplace's demon, they would say yes, that's fine. Even though I can be predicted. Um, and I guess I haven't had a chance to, to go through it in, in the I'm sure you're familiar with it, but maybe some people listening are. And so the experiment is this. There's a universe and the universe has a machine in it uh, and the machine can predict the position, spin, movement and action of every atom deep into the future, millions of years into the future, such that the behavior and interaction and manifestation of every molecule, macromolecule, and therefore cell and organism that results from these atoms is also predicted. So the machine predicts that Johnny, uh, born on such and such a day to such and such a parents, will rob a bank when he's 21 for such and such a reasons. Uh, and Johnny is born on the date and he does rob that bank for those exact reasons. Now, Johnny or his neither Johnny nor his parents know the machine exists, but he did the thing exactly as the machine predicted. Did Johnny act of his own free will? I've put this mm-hmm. question to 
25, no less than 25 people directly, just me to them. And invariably they say, well, maybe one said no, but all 24 out of 25 say, yeah, he acted of his own free will. And so most people, this is my belief, most people believe that even if the will can be predicted, as long as I'm free of manipulation, coercion, blackmail, anything like that, I'm acting of my own free will, even if it can't be predicted. And mm. so that's what I think is is the definitional hang up is that when we say free will, we aren't necessarily saying unpredictable. And I think that's what Sam Harris thinks, right? Sam Harris, he makes a beautiful argument. I'm a huge fan of Sam Harris. Uh, I donate. I'm on. I'm a monthly patron. And he makes the argument that, oh, uh, against free will as this infinite, I can pull from any list of infinite things and I can do anything in the universe type of thing, which is, a, but I just don't think most people hold that stance. Um, yeah, I hold the hmm. stance that we are complicated machines. We are theoretically predictable. And as a subjective reality, we are free to choose as long as we're free of and we have free will as long as we are free from manipulation, coercion, and blackmail, and and hypnosis or anything like that, any sort of thing that's mm -hmm. that's going in and affecting my decisions in that way, right? In that third party way, as long as I'm acting autonomously on the intentions and drives and thoughts and emotions that come up in my my mind as it's operating, then I'm acting of my own free will, and so I don't think there's a real I don't think there's a break there between being predictable and being free. That's interesting. Um, so when you're discussing the determinism in Laplace's demon example or mm -hmm. that, if I mean, can we just simplify it and say if you can predict an action accurately that the of a person because we're, we're trying to assign blameworthiness. Is that is that where he's going with this? Like, should should a criminal be responsible for his actions? Should someone who does something good be congratulated for that if he had no choice in it really is is that why they're they're exploring this or he i think what sam is pushing against is the i think what sam is pushing against mainly is the spirit that we're infinitely creative uh, some people kind of carry mm. that around and I think it's the minority, but some people do. Some people carry around the idea that, oh, I can do absolutely anything. I can think of absolutely anything, but that's not true. You can only, quote unquote, think of uh, the things that your brain provides for you to think of in a given moment. Uh, and the experiment mm. that he uses for this is um, and we can do it right now. I'll do it with you. So I sure. want you to think of a city, but don't. But it, and it has to be a city that we both would know, would recognize as a city in the world. Um, okay. But don't tell me what it is, and then tell me when you got one. All right. Um, I got it. You got it. Okay. So did you think of? Um, did you think of Sydney, Australia? No, you did not. Did you know before we have before I ask you that question that Sydney, Australia was a city? Yes. Did Sydney, Australia occur to you and then you eliminated it from the list of possible cities that you would think of? No. Yeah. So in that situation, you weren't free to choose Sydney, Australia because it didn't uh, occur to you to choose. Okay. Um, interesting. I, I guess so. Uh, 
do I can I tell you, you the city I was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking of LA. <laughs> LA? I was thinking of LA. Yeah, because I when you um said something that we'd both recognize as uh-huh. a city. I know you meant like a legit city, mm-hmm. but it's just the first thing that came to mind. It was like the big city. It's a great one. You know, it's, it's a great Cal, city. Right? It's like a great big city. city in SoCal, and that's interesting. Yeah, because it didn't come to mind. And that's well, that's Sam's point. That's Sam. Well, that's what Sam is pushing against with free. That a lot of people think, oh, I've I've cho- I could have chosen anything. Well, you really couldn't have, right? Your brain's doing the work. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't that demonstrate a lack of inputs rather than free will? Because we we only have what we've got, and mm-hmm. free will doesn't necessarily imply that anything is possible. It's just anything that we can do is possible. Like I can't flap my arms and fly like a bird mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah but that's not that's, possible that's how i but that's not free will. that's not an expression of free will mm. i could try <laughs> i could I leap off of something and flap right. hard but that's what makes the that's what makes the city example uh so so poignant because it's it is just of the mind right we we i think mm-hmm. most people would say oh yeah i'm not free to build an entire new corporate headquarters with my bare hands Right. Uh, I'm not free right, to right. do that because that's not physically possible. Uh, most people mm-hmm. grant you that. But something that is that is mentally easy and you could do, then you point out, well, why didn't you do that when you could have? Uh, and the truth is because your brain is in this constant state of and this is this is I think this is a little scientific. It's also my argument. Um, I guess I, I can take the moment to mention just to you, since I went from City College to uh, UCLA and got an undergrad in BS in neuroscience. And so I studied the brain at UCLA uh, after City College. And then I even worked, went so far to work in the lab. But science is thankless. <laughs> it's hard <laughs> and it's thankless. And I didn't do very well. And so I had to leave science. And, uh, and now I'm a game developer. But Ooh. yeah, it's, it's fun stuff. Nice. Uh, nice. The, we'll talk about that offline. We, we can talk about it online. <laughs> yeah, we get a long we'll, we'll finish this at first. Yeah, we'll yeah, finish yeah, this yeah. first. Uh, so the but the brain as a system is constantly saying, okay, what are the things that I might do in the next two seconds? Let's say, and it just it's constantly creating this list, and then it looks at what is the thing that I just did, and then it says, did that thing that I just did fit the set of things that I thought I might do. And it's constantly running this loop. And so you're you're in a state of, am I behaving in a way that I would expect myself to behave? And as long as that that condition is true, then you are quote unquote in control. You are quote unquote acting of your own free will. As long as that Hmm. system is true. Now the moment you behave in a way that is surprising even to you, the moment you stand up, scream the name of everyone that you love and start punching all your screens and then stop in a moment, you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I was not in control. I was out of control. I was not free just right then. Something else, something took over me. I was possessed or something like this. Uh, I think mm-hmm. that's how we use those definitions. And I think that's a scientifically accurate way to use those definitions. And it doesn't resolve. This is, this is something you're talking about with Sam. It doesn't resolve anybody who is going around screaming and punching screens of the responsibility of their actions. It just says that responsibility begins at the action and it doesn't begin at the intuition or the thought or the or the impulse or the feeling. Right. If someone has a feeling to go around and scream and punch screens, 
they're not responsible, quote unquote, for that thought or feeling. But once they actually go do it, now they're responsible for that set of actions that they perpetrated. Yeah, and I think that falls along with the the common understanding that like a typical person who hasn't put a lot of thought into it would, you know, would kind of agree to. Mm. It's more like like you approach a pool table, the balls are there, the balls go into the pocket after somebody hits it, and that's mm. that's kind of like the deterministic re- relationship between like the mental deciding and the action of doing it and like that that just seems a little more intuitive that mm. maybe that example's not perfect for what you just said but yes yeah i i think that makes a little more sense i think no i think that you you hit it on the head and i often i i've yet to actually encounter resistance to me saying i'll go to people and i'll say excuse me i'll say i think we're complicated machines i think you're a complicated machine i think i'm a complicated machine what do you think and then they go yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I've yet to actually encounter resistance to that. I've expected resistance for the past five years that I've been putting it to people. Haven't got it yet. Are you going to, yeah, can I, you offer it to it me? Doesn't, it honestly doesn't seem that controversial to me what? the way you phrase that. Yeah, because the way we understand machines as a, a coordinated series of working parts, I mm. mean, we, we learn about the human body and the mind sort of in the same way we learn about the different parts and how they contribute to the, the expected activity of the whole and uh, mm, that's right we do kind of learn about ourselves yeah. as machines and so i would imagine if i went to utah i i to be fair i'm putting that people to a that question to a very limited sample of people in southern california so if i went okay. to utah and started putting that question around i'd probably get a lot more pushback I mean, you might, you might not. They might just say, "Yeah, that's that's accurate." But who made the machine? And then they'll refer to that's God. Fair deal. Yeah, they, yeah. <laughs> they they might just go that way. And yeah, I, I, it doesn't seem controversial to me. Okay, no. okay, yeah. that's fair. I want to ask. You said you're leaning more towards authoritarian authoritarianism these days. Yes. Yeah. As opposed to libertarianism. What like what makes you what takes you that way? Because <laughs> I I'll tell you. For me, authoritarianism has a knee jerk negative reaction. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. Like um, authorita- authoritarianism is definitely something we were educated to instantly not like, mm. and I I just say it because it seems more honest to me. There are naturally forming structures of authority that work i think you can trace that all the way back to the foundation like pre-civilization how people would interact with each other Mm -hmm. i'm not talking about like a specific type of authoritarianism like maoist communist authoritarianism Mm -hmm. no i'm just saying to take the libertarian ideal to its logical endpoint is to have like a lack of authority Mm -hmm. and I don't think that's an appropriate vehicle to get a better society, which is ultimately what I want more than I want to adhere to a set of principles that just kind of fit together really nice and seem good. I, I've, re- I've kind of, I don't know, realized, evolved into thinking that maybe you don't need to have principles that make perfect logical sense if everybody's better off. Well, to me, that's the principle that makes perfect logical sense. Uh, Everybody being better off. Yeah, my moral North Star, uh, I've articulated it as humans, humans everywhere. 
so I'm a human chauvinist. Uh, I'm for the human species thriving. Uh, in th I'm for the human species thriving, no matter the other cost, right? So I don't. If the human species could thrive without Earth. I want Earth to be fine. Believe me, it's my home. But if we could thrive without Earth, and if and if it was ever a choice to where okay, either Earth survives or the human species survives, I vote for humans. Um, that's that's my, fair. Yeah, that's, that's my position. So, um, quick aside though, uh -huh. if it's human chauvinism, what is the the opposition? What are humans better than? Um, animals, ecolic planets. Um, okay, I yeah. okay, I get you now. That, that just just kind of establishing that. That's cool. Yeah, I think right, yeah. I think yeah. a Pin, Pinty Linkola was in called an eco chauvinist, where he yes. valued the ecosystem, the natural Earth's ecosystem as it existed before humans came along, above mm -hmm. us. He said that's more important. And so if, for him, if it was a choice of we either save the Earth or save humans, he saves the Earth. <laughs> yes, yeah. And that's how he got his misanthropic reputation mm. or anti-human reputation. And I definitely don't agree with him on that. Uh, I would definitely put myself into your side of things on the pro-human side of things. But I appreciate a lot of his ideas because they would end up creating a world that would be better for people mm. that doesn't that obviously doesn't consider the the opportunities beyond earth but having a functioning ecosystem that we are not sort of throwing out of balance is going to benefit us too yeah that's to, that's kind of why I like his idea i i wouldn't press the button but to be yes, fair, I understand to, the need to for his, that. his point, uh, and I think yours, is that the the way it stands now, everybody coming up with their own values, everybody coming up with their own rules and being sovereign citizens that don't have to pay taxes, that's not a sustainable model. <laughs> nope, definitely not. <laughs> yes, it's not. I mean, the, a lot of common libertarian counterpoints to that that I'm familiar with are like, well, we didn't always have these systems and private entities stepped in like charities and uh, churches, uh, friendly societies, that kind of things. And mm. they provided those roles. Mm. And you know what? In the, in the past, that is accurate. That is correct. Mm. I can't tell you that it's going to work better now, given the current situation. Mm. I don't think it would because for one, there's going to have to be a transition from this to that. Mm. And there's going to be some suffering caused in that meantime, that would be and I don't. So painful. It would be pretty bad, yeah. And I don't know what level of suffering the people who advocate that are comfortable with. I feel like because they're so attached to their principles, mm. that there's not really a limit on it. I feel like they're going to be as dogmatic and cruel as the the most authoritarian or stereotypically authoritarian regimes have been like Mao, like uh, the USSR. Um, they're just going to bring about their ideal system with no consideration for the human cost, mm. let alone the other costs, the, um, you know, the cost to the, the environment, the, the cost to, I mean, the opportunity cost to just the flourishing that could have happened if you maybe took a third ray, third way through. Like you don't have to go perfectly into that box to, to have something that works. We have a system that is not ideal now, but it works. It is self-sustaining. 
it perpetuates itself and the people in America by and large aren't suffering in the squalor that a, a medieval peasant on a, like a fiefdom would mm-hmm. be. Mm-hmm. So it, it's obviously improved at least materially. You can make arguments that spiritually and in a lot of non-material ways people have declined mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. yeah I see that I see that but you can address those problems in the system we have now by changing some things rather than a radical pivot to cat like super capitalism or super socialism or super whatever mm. and you can find a middle way through that takes functioning parts of each thing and not have a label or maybe have a new label I don't know and come up with something that's actually achieving the goals that each of these ideologies want. Ultimately, all these ideologies say they're better for most people. Mm. There's no ideology out there that's like, yeah, crush the common man. (laughs) (laughs) Capitalism and socialism and communism, they all end up causing some suffering. Some of them cause more than others. And when tried in different places in the world by different people, they, they have different levels of effectiveness as well. Um, my favorite example that really throws people for a loop is how functioning post-World War II socialist states were in Western Europe. Hmm. Um, those states had a lot of socialism, and they still do. They're having some problems now, but after, the, you know, after that war, they worked great. Hmm. People were happy. People were flourishing. Things were developing. Technology was advancing. You're talking about the Nordic socialist group. Oh yeah, the Nordic socialists. Yeah, that's that's a that's that comes up in political conversation still. I think mm-hmm. um, they they did a great job with it, and they got like they grew, and they you know I, I guess the rise and fall of empires can apply to non-empire countries too. Like they they achieved a level of wealth and comfort for most people, and corruption set in, and it's starting to fall apart. I see the same thing happening in America. Mm. Like there, there's been a lot of growth since the founding of America, and while we have had an empire and still have an empire, um, it's just not explicit. Like the, it's not sustaining itself, but it's still going on. You said the Nordic socialist models are encountering corruption. Yes, um, I mean every government has some level of corruption. Yeah, um, yeah sure, of course. Uh, the smallest level but harmful would be levels like, of corruption that are actually eroding the system. I think so. Yeah. Mm. You, um, the there's been a lot of immigration into those countries that hasn't been controlled and hasn't been accounted for mm. for their welfare programs, and mm. it's it's straining the the state. And they're continuing to offer these payouts, but they they basically don't have enough to go around with the amount of new people that are there. Maybe mm. it would equal, like stabilize if they if they kind of paused it. And like let things like normalize so they can catch up. But they had like a good system going with a certain number of people paying out and then taking out that much whenever they got older or whenever they qualified if they got hurt. And then they all of a sudden took in more people without adding enough more like contributors. Mm. So that that's one of those things you can kind of measure economically speaking uh yes there was some more activity because there's more consumption but there ultimately wasn't enough um enough input to match the output Mm. and you can see it with uh, public housing Uh, that's something that even 
even not in the Scandinavian countries, actually. In the UK, public housing is is pretty hard to get. Even in um, smaller cities, it's not just like London um, and Ireland, too. There are... Um, there's asylum programs in Ireland too, and they they are providing housing to immigrants, but there are still homeless Irish, like native Irish, mm-hmm. and like I I get wanting to help, and I too want to help. I am also pro-human, but you can't you can't help everyone. You have to be intelligent about it so you can help the most. Mm. And I don't know where the disconnect is because I feel like most people like they would agree with your in like complicated machine analogy for human beings like obviously you can't help everyone i i have limited means and that scales all the way up to my government mm. my government can't support the world mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it can totally be involved in gate and engaged with the world but it cannot support the world i don't think that we're doing things intelligently and the cost is ultimately like an opportunity cost if you're going to help X number of people over there, Y number of people here can't be helped. I think and there are people here be, that need help too. I think this might be a put your mask on first situation. So when you're on an airplane yeah. and it, yep. it tells you in case of emergency, you adult put your mask on first because your instinct exactly. is going to be to put it on the kid. Uh, mm-hmm. Even if it's not your kid, you know, even I, if it's I not totally your kid, your instinct totally is going to be to put it on a kid. So that's a beautiful instinct. A lot of people let that beautiful instinct uh, guide their political calculus, uh, which mm-hmm. is understandable, but it's hubristic. It's not, that's not a mature thought. You have mm-hmm. to put your mask on first. And so America has to take care of American citizens first, right? Yes. Uh, Finland has to take, take care of the Finnish first. And what I think we do is we're, and this is what I'm actively doing, is imagining systems such that if we get it right, we can teach Libya how to do it. If we get it mm-hmm. right, we can teach Yemen how to do it, right? And, and Angola mm-hmm. how to do it, right? We go, okay, this is what we did. This works. Because in the age of information, there's no more siloing of what systems work. And I think this is actually uh, kind of a shot at us in terms of national health care. National health care is better than for-profit health care. It's just better and I don't understand why our system hasn't caught up yet. Maybe you don't think it's better. I don't know. I think it's better. Um, I tying it back to what we talked about in the beginning. Uh, for-profit healthcare makes money. When that money accumulates, they pay for lobbyists. Those lobbyists mm. lobby their politicians. Those politicians make the laws. It's it's kind of like a a reoccurring theme here because. Yes, that would be better, but better for who? National healthcare would be better for who? The people who actually need healthcare. Yeah, <laughs> the citizen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the common and, citizen. Yeah, yeah. And, it's so uh, sad. I had a. I was uh, renting a room, and my landlord collapsed in the kitchen, literally collapsed oh, in the kitchen. Yes. But she said, "Just get me some water and help me to my room," because she couldn't afford an ambulance ride or hospital stay. That's the state of our country. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's abhorrible. It's absolutely abhorrible. Yeah, to to have events like that happening in America, it you can be so isolated in a, a, a nice, fun, functioning city like, and and that can be going on and you don't even know it. It, yep. it, it really is abhorrent. 
Yep. So what is the have you are you familiar with Jordan Peterson's work at all? Yes. The memes and the the videos themselves. He's got a an interesting <laughs> no, not the memes. Not the, memes are, the memes are working against them. Uh, the the yeah. work, right? So twelve rules for life, or um, maps of meaning, or now twelve more mm-hmm. rules for life. Any maps of meaning? I I tried maps of meaning. That was hard. It was hard. It was hard. Yeah. I, when I'm done with maps of meaning, so I haven't given it a full word for word read. But the text does offer, and Jordan offered, a in-book synopsis. So at the offset of every chapter, at the outset of every chapter, he gives you a synopsis of the key ideas in that chapter. And he says that if you read these kind of summaries um, that are included in the book of every chapter, then you've gotten the overall arch of the argument. And then if you want details, go back in. So what I've done is I've read that arched argument. Uh, and I've gone back in and picked out some details here or there, but I, so, but I haven't done a thorough read of every, of every uh, work. But the reason I bring them up, I mean, I've, I've done a thorough read of 12, 12 Rules for Life, and I'm almost done with 12 more rules, and I've watched 100 hours of his lecture. Um, nice. And listened to a lot of his podcasts. And, but he would overlap, I think, with your argument that we need authority. He calls it competence, uh, and I think he's actually switched – uh, he switched from calling these hierarchies that naturally form and are beneficial for us all dominance hierarchies to calling them competence hierarchies. And I think that's uh, I think that's a good way to go. I think in our country, we're having a lack of respect for competence. Uh, people think that just because it's a democracy, therefore, your opinion about um, immigration is every bit as valid as some person's opinions about immigration who has studied and works in the immigration department and who's been in it for 10, 15 years as far as knowing the ins and outs and what's possible and what's not. No, I mean, we're all welcome to have an opinion about it. I'm not saying people shouldn't have an opinion about it, but your opinion does not equal expertise unless you're actually an expert. Um, And there's just not enough respect for expertise. And I think that might go into your argument for Authority, maybe? Do is, is there some overlap there? I would say there's some overlap, yeah, because the authority to to work for the system to work for people, which is what we're both talking about here, it would have to be a benevolent and competent authority. Mm. Absolutely, you can't have somebody. Uh, you can't have like the divine right of kings giving some inbred, you know, royal family mm-hmm. the right to do whatever they want mm-hmm. with all the people who exist on this landmass. Mm. That didn't work. I mean, it, some kings were good, some kings were bad, some queens were good, some queens were bad. But yeah, that's not a predictably good, reliable system for what we are talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, to have a competent authority, or at least someone with the competence to defer to experts, yeah, that's that definitely makes sense. What do you think are the most logical next steps for us as a culture? Uh, logical as in what's going to happen or what should happen? Uh, practical. So practical. should happen and could happen. Should and could. Yeah. Okay. I think we need to examine the most contentious elements of society and the political system Hmm. and have an open conversation about it. And I think that doesn't just 
like obviously what we've been talking about money and politics corruption that needs to be discussed openly and the the information ultimately that proves it one way or the other needs to be released and exposed to as many people as possible mm. like mm. i don't know how to do that to a populace that is by and large disengaged uh, I, i'm sure you've noticed that too maybe not have you noticed that your your cohort your peers they're politically maybe they have a position but they're not super into it they don't really follow up on things well, what's what been your what occurred on to that? me as you said that was that that information even when it's freely available if it's it will probably be somewhat heady and somewhat intellectual to read and therefore even if it's freely available, it won't penetrate the masses. And so then it yes, comes down to fair. people translating it. Uh, so it comes down to science writers and uh, intellectuals and kind of the intermediate people who are translating intellectual ideas into more lay kind of common uh, fra phraseology. Mm -hmm. um, doing those translations in good faith uh and in in, in yeah. with expertise yeah, and, and but when those people are captured by the ad model like they are now uh all we mm. get are, all we get is clickbait clickbait titles yep. with a little bit with two seconds of substance and maybe it's right maybe it's not and then on to the next uh, so i think mm. there's a systemic problem there um, but i i totally agree with you that we need these we need the you said the most contentious issues Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would I would start personally with money in politics mm. and finding out where exactly all the political decisions, domestic and foreign policy wise, where are they coming from? Who's actually driving it? I've never seen like I, I'm in the army and there are people who are like rah rah rah. Let's go kill you know brown people in the Middle East. Let's mm. go crusade round. What, what crusade are we on? I don't know. They want to start the next one. That kind of thing. And a lot of those people aren't even Christian, so I don't get why they're using crusade. Mm. But, <laughs> like, I, I get it. There's that kind of person, too. And most of the people I've, I've talked to, like, meeting my soldiers or my fellow uh, soldiers' families, like, I don't know any of them who are even aware, let alone endorse our foreign policy. I don't know any of them mm. that are aware of how domestic money is spent mm. or like in favor of it. I do know that they have complaints about decaying infrastructure and like your landlady collapsing in her kitchen, mm. limited access to resources. They have those complaints. Mm -hmm. That's what they want. Mm -hmm. They're not being presented a candidate who is one going to say that they will give them those things and two actually will give them those things. Yeah. Um, and that, that causes a disengagement. You've yeah. got people who will tr like become interested in it because of a defining moment in their life. Maybe they lose a, a grandparent or a parent to the, that limited access to resources. They get super into politics for a little bit. They vote for whichever party they think is going to fix society. And then maybe they get it. Like they get their, you know, their bet and their politician wins, they serve their term and the system doesn't change. And then the people stop caring because they know that their vote ultimately isn't going to give them the result that they thought it would. It It's not even an issue of um, like a, a deep understanding of what a vote means in a republic like we have. Mm -hmm. It's more like simple, like 
I think this person's going to fix this problem. Mm. They vote for him, they get him, they don't fix the problem. And then they're just, well, I'm going to go back to living my life. Yep. But which, which I think is, I think is actually what they more or less should do what I would call. So I, I put, you know, I don't think there's any blame on their shoulders for, for voting. No, that, way, not that not. way. I think what you just ran was a great commercial for Tulsi because oh, that's yeah. exactly who Tulsi is. Uh, she's still in the running. And so, uh, you know, let's keep her name alive. She's very much running for it. Cause we need people who are in positions of power that are actually pulling these levers to be pulling them for the common person. Uh, our our elected representatives are so beholden to the powerful and so beholden to the powerful minority. Minority, uh, it's it seems impossible for us to even get uh, officials that will pull the levers for us. <laughs> and that's it, it how a lot does. of people feel. That's that's why they're so yes. apathetic. That's why they're so disengaged. They mm -hmm. go, "There's nothing I can do. It doesn't matter who I vote for." They go blue mm -hmm. or red. It's going to get worse for me in eight years, guaranteed. Um, yep. And that's not a sustainable <laughs> system. <laughs> it's not. It's not. And you can see the the fracture lines developing on the system because of how the politics are being run. While we're on it, I went. I had had to look up when Sheldon Whitehouse exposed dark money during the Comey Barrett appointment. Coney Barrett appointment. Did you see this? Uh, no. Go ahead and tell so me about it. During the uh, Coney Barrett Supreme Court appointment, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse brought up a series of boards showing exactly how dark money was moving behind her um, because dark money is moving all the circles. And so I've, I've got nothing against Amy uh, Coney Barrett personally. Uh, I might, I might disagree with her politics, but she seems like in like an upstanding and righteous judge. Uh, and so I'm yeah. not, I'm not speaking out against her uh, as, as a, as a justice, but he just pointed out the fact that there's dark money behind her and he lays it out there's a couple there's a there's a two minute video that i'm looking at a nine minute video and a 28 minute video i've seen the 28 minute one uh and mm. it was actually learning about uh james buchanan uh james m buchanan's thought and what that what that did to the Koch brothers and how it inspired them that got me to start this podcast because it's interesting it's the definition it's the uh, before then i had this vague sense that we common people were fighting some nebulous enemy that we couldn't quite put our finger on. Uh, and even I was, I felt like I was mature enough to say, okay, well, it's probably not a Mr. Burns type figure, just twiddling his <laughs> fingers in the, at the top of the power plant saying, ah, all the money, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that it's, you know, people are genuinely good. Everybody thinks they're their own hero and their own story, right? Everybody thinks they're doing what's good. So I said, so it must be more complex than that. But what could be this force that we all feel? I mean, we feel it generation after generation. It's getting harder and harder to be a common American. And there seems to be no help on the way. Um, and so what, what is what is this force? And what I discovered by reading Democracy in Chains by, by Nancy McLean is that James Buchanan, in part of a push against uh, integration, against black-white integration, but he, he couched it in he was a he was a serious thinker. And so he couched it in the idea of liberty. He said, you know what? It really shouldn't be up to the masses or any majority, simple majority or, or super majority to decide against the minority. 
And so that's a principle that has, okay, that's a powerful principle, seems right. And he defined the minority as wealthy individuals and the majority as the common voting populace. And so he vowed to say, there's really nothing that a that a common voting populace should be able to do to interfere with the with the autonomous mechanisms of the wealthy in a given society that would lead to that societal collapse that's how he defined it uh not he didn't say the phrase societal collapse but he defined that as a negative thing and then he set out to articulate this philosophy uh which he did uh, very intelligently and that's the idea that led to neoliberalism and that that's what i think is the largest overlap between big dim big d and big r is that no matter what you what you try to say to them they say well as long as the companies can profit Right. That's that's pretty much the the end end all argument for Big D and Big R is that, well, as long as American business can stay profitable at record levels. And that's kind of the benchmark that we all have to go around so that the the wealthiest few can remain the wealthiest few and we can't vote against their interest. And so we have to have to dance and vote and move around this pillar in the middle of the room. But <laughs> but we have to I have to ask is that the right pillar just just that the, there's nothing we can do to uh, discourage infinite individual wealth that doesn't seem right <laughs> to me uh, should, yeah. shouldn't we want to discourage infinite individual wealth shouldn't we be wagging our finger at anyone who's acquiring a personal wealth of north of a hundred billion dollars uh, again I'm, I'm being i'm being specific to say personal wealth if your company is worth 50 trillion great put it in the company account then i'm gonna bash the company and say okay maybe get it out of that company account put it to your employees buy some new machines fund some research do something but but we've gone so far as to we can't even criticize the companies being insanely wealthy because we can't criticize individuals for being grossly wealthy and so until mm -hmm. we can collectively get to that point uh you know hopefully we can make some progress but that's what sheldon pointed out during the Comey Barrett trial, that this this dark money is a problem, and the dark money is largely being moved through people who know, you know, the Heritage Foundation and all the Koch institutes. They know that their ideas will never gain popularity if they're exposed to the light of day, because they aren't popular ideas. This idea that an individual should be able to have infinite wealth, that a company should be able to amass infinite wealth, and there's nothing that the majority of the voting populace should be able to do against it, those ideas will never gain popularity. They aren't popular ideas, they're bad ideas, they're antithetical to, I believe they're antithetical to a functioning society, uh, to a long-term sustainable society. Ultimately, they will be. I mean, the wealth, they're not just materializing out of nothing. It's mm. being extracted from labor it's being extracted mm. from natural resources it's a group effort but a an, an individual company or person benefit mm. mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. and i the understanding of that is it's difficult especially when they they create little ways for you to participate in the wealth sharing mm. like oh invest in your 401k as the economy improves you have shares of this company so you're benefiting too and you can retire you can have your boat you can have your property mm. hey hey relax guys <laughs> sorry about that you're fine. yeah they they're um they've got little ways to kind of like pressure release mm. like oh they're dissatisfied they 
want more out of their government that they're paying into. Well, the amount that they pay in, they feel more than the amount that a corporation pays in. But they're not getting out what the corporation's getting out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the they're like, okay, people get fed up. Let's give them the option to buy into it. Let's get them invested into the system as it is now. And then what what interest are they going to have in changing it if it's going to put their retirement at risk? Mm. It's going to put their children's college education at risk. Mm. If it's, you know, they, they get people invested and then they kind of can decrease the amount, like a pressure release valve, that they want to actually, you know... There goes mine. Change things, yeah. It's a. Uh, have you ever read Sun Tzu, The Art of War? I've never read it. No. Okay. One of the the cliche popular quotes out of there is "Never cut off your enemy's route of escape," because mm. then they will fight like a cornered rat. And if you don't mm. get these things out of here, if you like the information, if you don't get it out into the public knowledge, then things will continue to degrade. And maybe they can come up with a new pressure release valve. I don't think it's realistic for them to just be able to be able to like continually you know basically slowly boil the frog Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. before it jumps out they're going to create a situation where things actually crack along those those fracture points and there's going to be balkanization of some port some some kind and then once those new groups form that threatens what we have now yep and then it'll it'll be an issue of like what's the next thing going to be because there's no there's no going back after that Man, I tell you, it reminds me of uh, a podcast called Pitchfork Economics, and there's a guy, oh, what's his name? I can't think of it now, but what, he's just a wealthy individual, but he, his, his, one of his core principles is that, look, I'm wealthy, but it's not good for me that common people continue to get poorer and poorer because eventually they're going to come for, with pitchforks after me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I don't yeah. want that. And, and just thinking about how what we what we I think wokeness is a religion uh, that's risen on the American <laughs> left, uh, and I think yeah. anti-racism is a religion. And so the I think the anti-racist woke religion will be the type of thing that would come after us with pitchforks if mm-hmm. we don't get these if we don't get this uh, get these economics right. Uh, people will. Police people will seek to police your language if we don't make sure that they can thrive through effort. Um, they're already doing it. They're yeah. already doing it. They're already. They're doing already it. doing it. Those policies exist in the army too. It's all public knowledge, but it, it's just as bad, just as corporate, just as woke, and there are really? more real consequences. But the enforcement, because it is the army, and we're subject to a different set of laws in addition to the laws that everyone is subject to, huh. there is discretion for application of punishment, basically. Mm. And there is sort of the, uh, you know, know the room that you're in, read the room. You can get away with some things in certain company and then you can't in others. It's always true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. It, it's it's really more of the same. I, I don't know what the civilian uh, mind like perspective of the army and the military is anymore, um, but it... It is ultimately a reflection of society at large, especially when you consider the people making the decisions. The officers are mandated to have college degrees. Hmm. So they go through the same, like, they're just people. They're just normal American people that go through the same experience that a lot of other American people do, college graduates, Hmm. and they get the same exposure to the same ideas, and then they come in and they make the same kind of rules. There's just, you know, 
sometimes harsher punishments. Sometimes you get away with it. If you're a performer and they have like that that uh that wiggle room, that latitude to make that decision. Mm. Um but it's you know, it's still the same thing. It's everywhere. I think the so um James, Lindsay, Peter Bogosian, and Helen Pluckrose did incredible work by exposing ex- these the pseudo intellectual underpinnings of the um unreasonable American left. And they've shown us that these these people believe that racism uh, is the core rot of America, uh, and they want to. And but they've also they also believe that racism can now be defined as, or, or that racism is present in every interaction. I think Robin DiAngelo said something <laughs> like, "Racism is pregnant is present in every interaction. It's just a matter of identifying it." Um, yeah. And so what I'm arguing now is what they've done is the religious trick of, or uh, yeah, what they've done is they've the religious equivalent of Christianity when Christianity says that the devil's greatest trick is convincing you that he doesn't exist. And so what this does is this creates a permanent fear in all Christians that in every interaction that you better watch out because the devil might be there. And if you're convinced he's not there, that's almost certainly evidence that he is there. And so that that type of thinking has gained popularity on the American left in regards to racism. So people think, wait a minute, was there racism in this interaction? If And as soon as I'm convinced that there was no racism in this interaction, that's evidence that there was racism here. Um, it's not helping. Yeah. It's not right. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not help helping. Us. Yeah, it, it, that fits in very well with your, your framing of the... Uh, the woke left with the pitchforks mm-hmm. like that's the and that being the new religion the the woke ism or the uh whatever they want to call it anti-racism anti-fascism you know it it is the dominant ideology and like the consequences of it can be seen in its effect on average people have you been watching sometimes portland? ignorant portland's on fire it's burning still, down still yeah insane that is a i never got to go i <laughs> i don't think it's going to be like ruins for or you know but like i'll still go hmm. but it was one of those cities i always heard about that was wonderful being from the same coast i, I had plans to go there eventually when hmm. i was more well established and could travel for leisure and now to to think that that's at risk in <laughs> it, it it's nuts I looked at the collection of mugshots from Antifa um, the other day, and I counted the proportion of black people that had been arrested, and it was a little bit less than the representation of black people in the city. And I thought it's so uh, there's actually a picture that captures it of a young white person holding a Black Lives Matter poster berating uh, an older black person holding support Trump flags. And oh yeah <laughs> so i mean i have a distinct memory of um are, are you aware of milo yiannopoulos yeah yeah the uh what what, what, they, what was his tour called the dangerous faggot sure. tour yeah, he, and the riots in, in berkeley california yeah 
Yeah, and those were kind of spreading into Oakland too. And I was actually in Oakland at that time. Oh wow! And I saw I saw a well balaclava, but the eyes looked white. Wow! And this anarchist was trying to light a street trash can on fire. He mm. drug it into the street, mm. had his lighter, and the kind of black person you'd associate with the stereotype of a thug: tall T-shirt, big black guy. You know, yeah. The, yeah. He walked up to him and said, "No, I wow. live here. Yeah. You're not doing this." And I was drunk in the street watching the chaos, and I my heart warned. Like <laughs> th- these <laughs> these people, these black mask people, these black block, black block, black yeah. block. That's it, black block people. Trash. I don't know where they come from. They're you. You looked at the mugshots, right? None yeah. of these people look healthy. No. None of these people look like the kind of people you want in your social group. <laughs> that you want. Uh, who you want their kids to play with your kids, that kind of thing. No, no, these guys are like, I, to make an assumption about a broad group of people, I'm going to do it. Damn it. These people look like scum. They look like bottom of the barrel. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know how they're being activated and organized, but they don't look capable of it themselves. I think, like, I think the com one common thread as I was looking over the mug shots, I said to myself, each one of these people believes sincerely believes that they're going to save this country. They think they're saving yes. it. Sincerely. Yes. And, and I don't doubt their sincerity in that belief. I'm just saying that that belief is is wrong, right? <laughs> yeah. So if, let's say let's say I believe. Uh, I'm in Santa Ana and the weather's nice. Let's say I believe that Godzilla, a very large fictional lizard, is walking around, stomping around my building right now. Let's say I believe that. It's possible for me to be wrong about about my with my beliefs, uh, and yes. so even the, even if I hold it sincerely, and so that's what I think is going on with Antifa. I think they're being uh, brought in this group and and taught that America is this racist patriarchic empire that's the the sole <laughs> poison of all the world's troubles, and it's your responsibility to burn it to the ground and therefore be the savior of all mankind. This is a narrative that they've taken to heart. Uh, and I hope that we continue to push back against it effectively. Uh, and I feel a lot of pain for the people of Portland. Are you familiar with uh, Brett Weinstein and Heather? He's is the, his last name's Heather's last name wife. Was Weinstein the mayor? No, he's a podcaster, intellectual and podcaster. podcaster. Oh no, I'm not familiar with him. Brett I thought that was- Weinstein. I'm sorry, and Heather Hine. So uh, Brett Weinstein and Heather Hine, they run a terrific podcast. Uh, called the Dark Horse Podcast, and they're just two residents of Portland talking about what's going on in the city uh, and doing oh, all goodness. they can to to keep culture alive. Uh, the dream of the '90s is alive in Portland. Well, I'm glad they're they're keeping the torch lit. Yeah. I do still want to go there. That that must be rough. I I don't know the true extent of it. They do. What, what do they talk about in their podcast? How bad is it? Are they living near where a lot of the yes the violence yes, and destruction? Yes, happen? they say. Uh, it's only because of them that I know where they said riots are still happening here every night. And they said just because the news stops covering it doesn't mean these things have gone away. Uh, these people come out and black block every night. They march up and down the streets. They destroy things. They spray paint things. They set fires every night. Uh, this is what they deal with. They they push. They love to push trash cans in the middle of the street and set fires. Um, yeah, that they they love to do, and they really think they're part of something huge and. And, uh, you know, it's not happening 
you know, I don't know what the city of Portland is going to do. Uh, I think the the police department, you know, there needs to be as as saying that I've seen the mugshot. That means they're doing something. <laughs> quiet, quiet. Uh oh, hold on a second. You got easy guys. You got an animal. Mine barks at anything that moves. <laughs> no, that there's four of these dogs. I'm watching them in a neighbor's house right now. I'm not sure what they see in the backyard. Can we take a quick break? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Hello. Hello. I think I sorted it out. The, okay. I, I think it was the neighbor's own cat that they saw in the backyard, mm. and they just wanted to chase him around. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, they saw their old buddy. Why must I be like that? Why must I be <laughs> the cat? Ah, uh, the eternal question. I think they all know, though. They know because they do it. Yeah, yeah. They, that's right. That's right. That's how you know. Uh, that's what actually what JP he JP loves to say that he he loves to talk about the embodied truth. Um, he says he says this he says there's a knowledge that's embodied, and that that knowledge is the ultimate knowledge, and it's just a matter of working you have to do work to articulate the things that we already know and that's what that's where he draws on the metaphor of learning is just i think it was plato that said that that learning is just remembering something that you already know right deep in your bodice (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 what are you what are you into what are you excited about these days what's what's big in your mind Big in my mind, um, the training I'm going through obviously is front and center. I have a fiance. Well, sort of. Sort of. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's a little, it's not too complicated, but it's a little complicated. She has a timeline where she wants to finish her her higher education before she is engaged okay. and then married. Okay. Actually, I think she said she starts law school in the fall and she wants to be engaged about one year into law school and then get married either her last year or after she graduates. So as the man, I must acquiesce. Yes, yes, yes. Of course it takes two to tango. (laughs) Uh, I got married in January. Uh, Fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. We were engaged for seven, eight ish months. Uh, but we had been together for a couple years before that. So we knew that's the path we were on. Um, and because of COVID we had to bump our actual ceremony. So we got married at a very small, beautiful private ceremony with just our immediate family, but we're going to have the big to do, uh, later this year. And so that's uh, awesome, man. We're currently sending out save the dates and invitations and all those things. Oh, that sounds awesome. Where, where are you going to have the, is it going to be like the reception then? The reception or? is going to be at, in Redondo Beach. So right Ooh. on the water. Mm. Good choice. Yeah, Good that choice. Was a, that was a big criteria for me. Uh, I'm, you know, we're water-based beings. And I think when I think of water, I think of life, which, oh, so let me tell you, let me say this to you. I read the Enuma Elish earlier this week. Have you heard of this? No, what is that? The Enuma Elish is the Babylonian creation myth. Uh, And so it's Mm. one of the earliest creation myths that we know about. And it goes like this. In the beginning was uh, nothing, but then in the beginning was nothing and nothing had a name or there was. So there were things, but nothing, nothing had a name. It was all kind of this vague mess. And then came Kapsu. Apsu was the first named thing. Uh, and along and after Apsu was there, things began to have names. 
one of the other the second name thing was Tiamat and Tiamat and Apsu were together the waters of creation uh, and so Tiamat mixed or and Apsu mixed with Tiamat where Apsu is the male Tiamat is the female Apsu mixed with Tiamat and gave birth to Lamu and Lahamu these are the first twins so to speak um, that were birthed and the first gods other than Apsu and Tiamat and Apsu and Tiamat gave birth to more gods and Lamu and Lahamu gave birth to other gods and there were, there were many many more gods until eventually there was an entire pantheon and the entire pantheon of gods existed but surprisingly to Apsu and Tiamat the gods were noisy <laughs> they were terribly <laughs> bothersome. They they made all sorts of racket and their peace had now been permanently disturbed. And so Mahmud, who was a priest, went to uh, Tiamat and said, Tiamat, I have a recommendation for getting your peace back, for solving the problem of these noisy gods. We kill them. We destroy them all. Problem solved. Tiamat said, well, I don't really want to destroy everything that I've created. So... I'm gonna do a gonna do a hard no on that destroying everything, but thank you for bringing it up. <laughs> then Mahmud goes to Apsu and says, "Apsu, I've got a solution to solve your quiet problem or not so quiet problem. We destroy the gods." Apsu thinks about it, says, "Yeah, that sounds good to me. We should destroy the gods." So uh, he tells Tiamat about his plan. Tiamat says, "Listen, I'm not for that." But you're Apsu, you're going to do what you're going to do. Just on the record, I'm not for you destroying everything. So Tiamat's already a little perturbed that her husband is even given to, to Mahmud's recommendation. But here it is. Here he is. So this is what he's out to do. Ia, one of the gods that is to, to be destroyed, says, no, 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 no. I will not be destroyed. And so Ia slips in and poisons Apsu so that it looks like he's asleep, but he's actually dead. And so Mahmud discovers the body of Apsu dead and says, what the hell is this? And then he discovers Ia and Ia's wife living on the corpse of Apsu wearing Apsu's crown. So not only did oh, Ia kill Apsu, Ia took over his corpse and brought his family in, which is being all hunky-dory <laughs> about it. So Mahmud tells Mahmud tells Tiamat about it. Tiamat gets pissed. She says, what? They killed my husband and they're living on his corpse? So she raises Kingu, her fa one of her favorite sons, and she raises 11 new categories of demon and instead of blood, they have poison and she makes all this incredible army and monsters and she's armed to the teeth and she gives Kingu the, the tablets of destiny. She said, Kingu, now you control the destinies since, since Apsu's been murdered. You control the destinies now. I'm the leader of this army. We are fit for vengeance. We are fit for war. And she makes sure that her and all of her offspring are armed to the teeth and they and her selected few are going to go destroy everyone else. Um, and Anshar, hearing about this, says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not part of the selected crew, so I don't like what's going on here. And Anshar gets Anu and says, Anu, go talk sense to Tiamat. Go say to Tiamat, hey, you can't go killing everything just because your husband's dead. See how that works out. Anu goes and talks to Tiamat. She's not hearing reason. And, and plus, the words weren't enough to move her anyway. She was probably never going to be moved by words. This is what Anu reports back to Anshar. So he says, geez, Louise, I don't know what to do now. And so Anshar finds the sun god Marduk and says, Marduk, will you defeat Tiamat in battle since words don't work with her? 
Marduk thinks about it. Now, Marduk being a uh, opportunistic and clever person, uh, he says, you know what? I will face Tiamat in single battle, but here's the thing. If I defeat her, all you guys have to agree to give me the Tablets of Destiny. And that includes control over you, right? So you, you essentially have to make me king. You have to agree that I'm king if I defeat her in single battle. Hmm. And so Anshar thinks about it. He says, let me take this back to the other gods, to the Ajiji, and we'll think about it. He says, okay, fine. So Anshar goes back to the Ajiji, and he says, hey, guys, uh, Marduk said he's willing to face Tiamat in single battle. But if he wins, we have to agree to give him the Tablets of Destiny. And so the Ajiji, they think about it. They go, hmm. I wonder why we have never been able to defeat Tiamat, why we have to always go and get these champions. They said, let's table this decision while we throw the party. So they throw a party, they get drunk, they dr they get fat on bread and wine. They, after they have these festivities, they're sitting there and they're so tired and worn out and having spent all their energy on this party. Then they go, ah, yeah, let Marduk do it. I guess we aren't up to the task. So they let Marduk do it. And so Marduk sets out. He, the agreement says, okay, Anshar says you win. If you beat her, you get the tablets. Okay. So he sets out the four winds that are going to capture Tiamat in a net. And then he sets up seven winds that will disperse her body into all the different directions. And then he sets up an evil wind that sits just on his back, uh, that will always be behind him on his back. He sets up his chariot. He sets up his horse. He picks his best horse. He sets it up on a chariot. So he prepares everything that might be needed to attack Tiamat to dismember her and counter her every move. He sets all this up and then he goes out for battle. He charges at Tiamat. Tiamat attempts to swallow him whole and as her mouth is open, he pulls the evil wind off of his own back and throws it in her mouth. Her body is blown apart. It gets captured in the net that he set before and she is sent to all the corners of the world completely dismembered and taken apart. When Kingu saw Marduk coming into battle rather than defend Tiamat like he was supposed to, he turned around and ran. He didn't even try to fight seeing Marduk in his full in his full form. Uh, Marduk captures Kingu and all of her lieutenants. He takes their weapons and he puts them in prison. And then he goes back to the EGG, says, I have slain Tiamat. I have captured her, her, her army and I've made them weak. And so they give Marduk, the Tablets of Destiny, and they sing his name for all of eternity. Isn't that a great story? <laughs> that is wild, yeah. I can kind of see some parallels with the uh, the Greek and Roman pantheon there, too. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, it's great. It's a great story. Uh, and I, I, just, I like knowing that from my personal perspective, because I was a born-again Christian at 21. By the time we met, I had actually started to come away from Christianity. Uh, but I was born again Christian at 21 and just learning that there were other myths, other stories that preceded that one. It made me question, well, if there are other ones that came before this one, this can't be the main one. Right. This can't be, <laughs> this can't be the, the only truth that there are other people that are competing for truth. And so I uh, yeah. And so uh, but just learning the Enuma Elish, which is the one the Babylonians used. I think it's very clear that our minds uh, our minds think in terms of parents and they think in terms of waters and they think in terms of uh, which was got me on this whole thing because thinking about the water of life I think Tiamat Tiamat Apsu represents salt and seawater um, because that's where we ultimately where we come from 
salt and seawater and mm-hmm. uh, yeah yeah it's just a fun story uh, about us and it says a lot about how we it says a lot about how we form ideas in our minds i think yes i think yeah our understa- our understanding of things greater than perhaps human comprehension mm. our like interpretation of things that we're just reaching at that maybe we'll never get to mm. that, that is a fascinating thing um i also would you say it was four wins to trap her seven wins to tear her apart after he throws the final wind into her mouth yes now don't so that's hang 12 me, wins don't right? hang me on those numbers okay uh, but i it was gonna i was just gonna tie it to the number 12 which hmm. pops up a lot i mean 12 tribes of israel um yeah disciples that's right uh what else 12 olympians that was the primary pantheon uh for the greek religion um and they had 12 titans before them uh hercules completed 12 labors uh yeah it it, it, very interesting and like the connection between those religions is uh i mean there's just the historical timeline i don't think there is a that that would have been pre-bronze age collapse Mm -hmm. right yep so like it's not like they were just adapting this it's just something that i mean we came up with and it's the split interpretation uh, and it's the four the it's the four cardinal directions so north east south and west and then right the seven the lucky number seven right Mm -hmm. so the seven we we know uh is i'm trying to think of the the golden ratio i don't think that has a seven in it I forget what the golden ratio is. I don't think it has a seven in it, but the, but we know lucky number seven. We know the seven repeats around mm-hmm. a lot. So the four plus seven is then twelve, and then you do, well is the division of the year arbitrary in the twelve months? I I don't know if it's arbitrary. It I think it's 10. based off of a yeah. I I think they were trying to establish a pattern based on seasons. Hmm. I think that's how they came up with the the division of the months. But don't quote me on that one either. It's all based around agriculture and growing. Something is like that. What I thought it was. Yeah. Tell me about BJJ. How long have you been doing it? Oh, uh, I actually just started recently. Hmm. Um, I have I had a little bit of time off in between uh, training cycles, different classes that they're having me do, and what was it? Maybe twenty days, and I was bored. I finally got enough sleep for the first time in like a year, and mm. then after that, I was just like, "Well, what do I do with my time? I'm used to being busy. Let's let's try something else." <laughs> nice. Uh, I don't know if you remember. I used to practice uh, martial arts back in. Uh, you know what? Now back that you in, say that, I vaguely remember that. Yeah, I, I did uh, American Kempo Karate, and that's not this. Obviously, this is all all ground game, all all grappling. And it's it's really fun. Um, I would say my only strength is that I'm relatively fit. The army demands it of me, and I, I tend to do a little bit extra, so I don't have to worry about you know passing any tests. Mm. And it, I as a beginner, it's getting beat up all day. Like when I go to class, it's great. It's really fun. It. I wouldn't say it's super humbling. I mean, it obviously is humbling when you're physically like outmatching somebody and they still can beat you. And I do enjoy that feeling, but overall, I would say it's it's positive. Like the sensation, the feeling, mm. the the activity, it, it's a really good feeling. Do you follow Sam Harris at all? Uh, I'm I'm aware of Sam Harris. I don't like subscribe to anything he does regularly, but I, I see his stuff come up on uh, 
like YouTube and people talk about him on a podcast that I listen to oh, he's on occasion. You're going yeah. to want to check out his most recent conversation. It's not his most recent conversation, period, but it's his most recent conversation with Henner Gracie. Uh, this was about Ooh. three weeks ago, four weeks ago. Uh, okay. And he talks with Henner Gracie. So Henner Gracie has set up a program that's only been adopted by one police station in the nation. But I sincerely believe it will not be the last. <laughs> and so Ooh, I hope his, so. his I, I kind of like where this is going. His program uh, says, okay, every rookie has to do, uh, I think it's 12, in, uh, no, it's an hour of BJJ a week every week permanently this is just this is not a do it for a year and then you're done thing you just you constantly train bjj uh and then they have to be i think blue belt before they're allowed to do some i don't know some sort of thing but they make them get blue belt first and then they keep them constantly training constantly updating training and the police department pays for the training from a local uh official outpost of the Gracie school they you know you can't just let any school train these people it's got to be one that's really going to make efficient use of the time and train them well so there's an outpost set up in this city the police department pays for it the police department is saving money on its annual budget by training its officers in BJJ because normally a police department has to pay out so many tens of thousands of dollars, maybe even a hundred thousand, depending on the size of the department every year in workman's comp to the officers and the officers hmm. most of the time are injured in trying to restrain a, a would be uh, arrested person and trying to restrain somebody. That's most of the time where they get injured. And so because these officers are, are trained in BJJ, they have no problem restraining uh, uncooperative people and they they suffer no injury. And so the workman comps, the, the money that they've saved on workman comps is more than what they paid to the training school. So they're actually saving money by training their officers in BJJ. And of course, uh, one of the more striking statistics is that every police department has complaints against it every year. In this particular department, 100% of the force complaints have come against the officers that are not trained in BJJ. The, the, officers, that are trained, the officers that are trained in BJJ have had zero un, unuse of force or zero force complaints against them. That is, I mean, I, I've talked with police about getting that kind of training and mm. they've usually been down for it. I've never actually seen or heard about a police department actually doing that that's awesome yeah check out that podcast and they'll point you i, I pulled video. it up uh oh, okay yeah episode 246 police training and policeman con misconduct right. a conversation with renner gracie yep. so if anybody listening wants to check that out too please do so sam harris making sense love sam i've been a, i've been a huge follower of sam sam is one of my my intellectual role models uh i discovered him in undergrad so i was reading what was i doing i was coming away, oh this, this actually ties to the coming away from from god from religion question i was seeking out where is god because okay we talk about god we say god is this god is this god is this and the idea came to me well where is god actually literally right i mean is he is, hmm. he, is he in my 
phone? Is he in my water? <laughs> like, where is where is God? If, if this God is really here inter- interfering and interacting with everything, it must be here in my physical presence somehow, right? So I began to look for God in the physical. Uh, where is it? And then in that search, I discovered Richard Dawkins, who said, you can't find God because he's not there. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I had never I'm heard aware any, of Dawkins too. Yeah, yeah. I'd never heard anybody say that out loud. Like I said, Richard, what are you doing? Uh, and so I, I read The God Delusion, and I was watching uh, a documentary about The God Delusion, more or less, uh, and Sam Harris was on it, and Sam said, anyone who claims with certainty that they're hearing from God has to be treated identically to someone who claims with certainty that they're hearing from aliens. There's no objective distinction between the two. Uh, and that made me go read the end of faith. Uh, and ever since then, I'm actually, I actually got a degree in neuroscience because Sam was a neuroscience major. Uh, I switched from oh. computer science to neuroscience because I said, I said, I have to know what this man knows uh, to, to have this opinion. Uh, so forward, it's the most forward opinion I'd ever in- encountered. And so I read everything he's written, save for Islam and the future of tolerance, uh, because by that time, my opinion on Islam was basically already his after listening to, to many hundreds of hours. <laughs> OK, <laughs> you know? fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I haven't read that one. That was a work between him and Majid Nawaz. And I took uh, I took undergraduate intro to Islam uh, and I took a year of Arabic. And so my exposure to, to Islam is more than, than, than probably just the average non-exposed American. And so I didn't feel like I need, really needed to, needed to read Islam. The point of the book, I'm certain, is that Muslims are people too. <laughs> so, and most, wow. of, most of them are, are, yeah, I know, groundbreaking, right? Groundbreaking. Yeah. And most of them are God-fearing and law-abiding. And most of them you want to sit down and have as neighbors and be loving to. And I'm sure they also highlight that there are some that believe in this jihadi, uh, holy war type of system, and mm-hmm. the, the West is their enemy. And yes, they are actually trying to use Islam as a weapon to destroy the West. That's a real thing. That doesn't mean that that's the majority of Muslims. In fact, it's it's a minority. It's a sizable minority. I think uh, people people rightly argue, and it's a troubling minority. Because, you know, we can see that what their that their religion has driven them to attack soft targets, which is the most terrifying thing. Uh, you know, our military doesn't intentionally, I'm, I believe, go after sports stadiums and go after concerts. Our military, right? Some some Americans do. But our military doesn't go after intentionally go after. Let's bomb the lobby of a, of a concert. Right. <laughs> But Correct, in yeah. Islam, they do that, right? And in these for these uh, for these suicide bombers, they say, "Let's go cause the most. Let's go in the middle of a shopping mall and explode this thing." Um, and that's a very, very troubling and dangerous precedent. Yeah, um, it it the the dehumanizing aspects of that. I think you could chalk that up to the political climate nowadays. Mm-hmm. It was some of the reason that we we got into the war post 9-11 and how they they like rallied people um they gave i mean they basically gave people a free pass to be racist against one group Mm. and yeah you you can definitely see that like the echoes of that now it's not as intense now obviously but it's fascinating that disconnect between um like islam christianity and judaism like Mm. uh, christians i I would assume 
like should be more skeptical of Jewish people than than Islamic people if you go off of just what the books and the the religious teachings say about Jesus. Like the hmm. what what I understand of Islam and their opinion of Jesus is that he was a, a prophet, but not one as high as Muhammad. Yeah, yeah, Jesus and, was a prophet, um, but no. Muhammad uh, was the prophet of Allah. Exactly, right? And then if you look at what the, the Talmud says about Jesus, it's very not nice. It's mm. stuff that I don't even like saying. And bringing that up to um, certain people who have, like, you know, Christian people who are really radically against uh, Islam and perhaps, like, pro-Israel or pro-Zionist. Mm. And, like, I bring that up to them, and it's like a real culture jam, culture shock. They're like, whoa, I didn't even know that. Like I thought, I thought the uh, the Israelis were the chosen people, and we had to do everything that we could do to bring about uh, a greater Israeli state, and like <laughs> basically the the consumption of Palestine and the Palestinians, and like, but like they don't, they didn't know that, mm. and like they didn't talk about it in their churches because mm. I, I I'm I'm a Christian, I go to the, I go to church, okay. I go to Baptist churches down here uh, where I'm at, and like. I do hear the, the the Zionist impulse in these churches. Mm. It's not it's not like the defining moment, Which but it's should there be and a peculiar thing, right? Should yeah, it, it doesn't it, make sense. It, it, it really it didn't doesn't. Hit my radar as peculiar until you said it. But isn't that a bit peculiar that the people who killed Jesus and the people right. who were his <laughs> his ideological descendants call themselves one culture? Isn't that it's very strange and it seems a little one-sided too like i i'm not aware of like the 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 analog to the christian zionist movement for jews Mm, mm, i'm not mm. aware of that it could be out there Uh, i I don't they they are out there they are called jews for jesus um oh that's a real group i thought that was a meme that's a real group okay i thought you were gonna i was gonna bring up a zionist uh Christian, wait, hold on. There's a, a subsection of Judaism, and it's Jews that believe in Jesus, but they still identify as Jews and trace uh, lineage to them. Yeah. I, what what is that? Is it um, uh, the group that I met was just a people that were ethnically Jewish and culturally Jewish, and mm-hmm. they should be religiously Jewish, but they were saying, "Look, we are people." Right, we're people who've come up in culture, and because we're ethnically, biologically, culturally Jewish, we're being told that we can't be Christian. But that, but we're against that. We want to be able to be Christian, and we support Christianity and Christian belief. And so they were people who were uh, culturally and biologically of the Jewish heritage, and that were being told in their private lives that you also have to be of the Jewish faith. But they said, we don't want to be of the Jewish faith. We want to be Christians and we support Christianity and we just want the two to get along. Um, that was, yeah, that, that would be an interesting conversation to, to have, like what, what's stopping them from converting is their attachment to their Jewish heritage, I'm assuming. And like, they want, they want to like, basically make them the same thing yeah i picked up that it was mostly cultural pressure it was mostly when you yeah. go back behind closed doors your mm-hmm. Jewish aunt says you're not a christian you can't be a christian knock it off type of thing yeah uh, yeah. yeah but if they believe in christ i don't know what but else makes you believe what you believe right believe yeah it's a it's a very very interesting thing and and also the big part of their platform was i was that they were pro christian 
belief for others, right? So they were Jews, but they weren't anti-Christian. They said, no, let's have Christian schools. Hmm. Let's have Christian people, you know, Christian celebrations and, and Christian texts. And let's just celebrate Christianity. Let's celebrate Christianity and celebrate Judaism. And this was their unique stance. Yeah. I Messianic Jews. That's what it is. Hmm. Messianic Jews. I think those are the ones that believe that Christ was Messiah. Okay. 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 Um, I've met a couple of them uh, in my training. I should actually have a conversation with them about this. I've, of course, I you know picked the brain of the Mormon guy, but I overlooked the uh, the Messianic Jew. Hmm. I should I shouldn't have done that. Yeah, I. That's very interesting. I wonder if the if that was projected into the future as the right course, would the religions just merge, or would they still remain distinct? And if they did, wouldn't that imply that? I mean, Jew, is it a religion? Is it an ethnic group? That's something that gets tossed around a lot, too. It's all. It's all three. Yeah, it's it's, it's a, both at the same time, yet yeah. neither at all. <laughs> I, th- I, th- I just yeah. think it's all three. Kind of, like, uh, kind of like Los Angeles is a city and a county. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's okay. both. So one within the other, kind of, yeah. One within the other. So when you say yeah. Los Angeles, depending on your context... You might be talking about city, you might be talking the county. Uh, I'm perfectly mm-hmm. fine with with understanding Jewish as a term that is simultaneously a race, a culture, and a faith. And and culture, race, and faith are independent axes. Uh, and so you can be of the, I guess, so I don't know if you can, but this is theoretically, you could be of the Jewish race, but of the, let's say, American hip hop subculture but then of the Buddhist faith, theoretically. Oof. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if Another there are any hip-hop, hip-hop uh, Jewish people that are that are Buddhist now out there. So uh, react to the I would, email I, if you I could definitely see that because Buddhism was definitely a trendy religion in Hollywood maybe two decades ago. I remember like Richard Gere converting to Buddhism when I was like around 10 or 9. <laughs> and... Uh, I'm, well, actually, I don't know if he's Jewish or not, but like, I know there are plenty of Jews in entertainment, and like, for them to indulge in Buddhism either sincerely or as a fad, I, that doesn't seem outside the realm of possibility. I'm with it. So, I'm, with it. I'm huge yeah, it on definitely the would believe. The moment. I saw it. I believe that the moment is. I believe that the moment is how we access the divine, and I'm not. I'm. I'm. You. I mean, the actual divine. Divine. Uh, and the reason for that is I believe that so I, I believe that this reality is probably not base reality. Are you familiar with simulation theory? Um, cursory, cursorily, very mm-hmm. surface level. I, I've discussed the ideas in like uh, the cave and I've seen the matrix. So yeah, I, I'm aware of some of that stuff. I know there are more elaborate theories out there, like computer-based simulation theory and mm. kind of things like that. But what, what were you going to bring up on that? Just that uh, that's what I just I'm I'm a I'm trapped. I'm currently trapped in the logic of of simulation theory. Uh, that is to mm. say, it's my it's my stance because the logic seems to me to be so uh, solid, which is that if there is any reality anywhere it doesn't have to be this one but if there's any reality then the chances are that that reality will develop to a point where whatever conscious beings inside of it will begin to simulate 
their reality inside of in, in a sub reality, so to speak. So you can imagine the way that we have Minecraft and simulated worlds and all sorts of little worlds where we've got all sorts of simulated people. Well, if those those simulations became sufficient to then themselves where the, the entities inside of the simulations were sufficiently sophisticated, then they themselves would wake up and say, whoa, uh, this is reality now. And they themselves would be, then begin to create simulations. And the, so the chances are, probabilistically speaking, the ratio of the ratio of simulated realities to real realities will be one to infinity or the reverse, <laughs> right? It will be right. infinite to one, the ratios of one real reality to the simulations. And so the chances are we're in a simulated reality. Chances, probabilistically speaking. And that's the logic right. that has me trapped. <laughs> <laughs> well, have you ever thought about the consequences of that and how that manifests in our society, simulated or not? Because that sounds a lot like some postmodern philosophy that I dabbled in maybe a year ago. Are you familiar with uh, Jean Baudrillard? Uh, no. So he wrote, he's a postmodern philosopher. I think he's French. He wrote a lot about like media and culture mm. and uh, tech communication um, and the and concepts of simulation. And he came up with, I, I think he was the one that coined the term hyperreality. Okay. Um, which is this, it's... Um, it's the inability of a person to distinguish between reality and a simulation of reality. Uh, a really like a, a tangible example is people going to war when they first started photographing war and um, like journalism in war became a thing like in Vietnam and or you no, know, actually probably later on when it the the quality of it became better and they had video uh, seeing like blood and explosions and violence happening to real people. Hmm people were experiencing that and then saying that like it it didn't seem as real until they saw it on TV mm. so they were they were getting a perspective on things that they had actually done that seemed more real than them actually doing it and this this concept of of the hyper real um, you can go back to some of the societal problems that we were talking to and kind of look at how, uh, consumption is driven by a a desire to experience something that you won't actually experience when you consume what you see in an ad, but the you're buying that like I want to buy in and experience these shoes that are going to be so great because the commercial made them look so awesome and there was this person running with them and they're just they're going and they're flying and if I get these shoes I'll fly too. Mm. Yeah, um, that that idea of the simulation and its effects, you can definitely see it today. I think it, it's not it's not just driving like consumerism, but it, it it's it's changing how people engage with the world because the interactions you have with simulations that are like you don't even have to be super intellectual to see that it's a simulation, a video game, a movie, uh, what you see on the news these things feel more real to people and galvanize people more than what they go through on a day-to-day. -day. It's more interesting and stimulating than their day-to-day their -day life. And 
it drives their perspectives and decision making more. I hear what you're saying. I don't think of it that way. Um, the way I think of it is, let's say there were a, let's say one of the one of the people in Minecraft. Let's say my, we got crazy AI in Minecraft, such that the, the people okay. inside of it actually became sentient. The little villagers became sentient inside of Minecraft. They woke up and they saw the little world, and they at first they might interact with their world without giving it too much investigation they might just say oh uh one meter blocks makes total sense to me and they just live <laughs> their lives in one meter blocks and never question about why they are the, what are they doing on this flat infinite world then some my village villager comes along and says wait a minute what is this and it begins to investigate its own self it begins to look inward right at its feet right in the moment that it's in at whatever frame it's in and upon deep 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 investigation it would determine that it was actually comprised of a mesh made of vertices and that it could actually see its own code being executed in its head in the groups of JSON and C++ code. It could it could mm. feel that JSON and C++ code happening on its head as it looks at its vertices and meshes. And it could if it paid close enough attention, it could actually feel the binary, the on off switches moving through uh -huh. it. Right. So you're talking about transcending the the typical experience into that deeper no like no the this, underlying is, this is one? not transcendent this is not transcendent so this is the Minecraft entity investigating itself as deep as it can possibly go and the deepest it can hmm. go is this binary signal it will have no clue how to understand a graphics card. And, and and the periodic table of the world of the elements in which the graphic card exists, it can't get okay. there. It's a hard block. And so when I think of for for us, I think we can investigate our core. We can investigate physics to the limit, but there's probably going to be a hard block where we can't investigate the hardware from which we spawn. Uh, okay. So that at that point you're talking about transcendence at that point anything you say about the hardware if me, if me and you were minecraft villagers we would have a, an, a, an nvidia 360 religion we would have uh we would have 2060 <laughs> religions we would have 1080 religions we'd have these different religions and some that say flash we would have flash memory religions because we're just making all this stuff up because we can't yeah, actually know you can just keep going you can keep going deeper but ultimately you're going to hit that deepest point and then we can't comprehend something beyond that deepest point you can't detect anything detect it that point. yeah yeah so once you're beyond detection you're talking about transcendence and you're talking about belief and mm. you're talking about religious thinking that's fine and that yeah yeah i was just thinking that religious thinking and the the limits of it is where i guess your your theories are going to have to begin to to take the place of actual observation simulation theory is a religious idea it totally feels that way. Yeah, one hundred percent. I'm not. I'm not saying. As in fact, determinism is a religious idea because it's not falsifiable mm -hmm. in time. You can't. Correct. You can't yep. go back exactly three moments and go. Let's see if I'm going to do the same thing again. <laughs> right. You can't do right. experiments in time. Doesn't so work that way. It doesn't work that yeah. way. And so, because determinism is not falsifiable, it's a religious idea. Mm -hmm. It's a belief. You believe in determinism. It's a belief, don't. not a fact. Right. It's not a fact. Yeah. Mm. And yeah, so I, yeah. I, I've been digging uh, simulation theory. I forget why I even started talking about simulation theory. But uh, yeah, yeah, I dig it. You said you're a practicing Christian. Has your. Yes. 
where do you stand on people who are so let me let me ask you this you're a practicing christian so if someone comes up to you and say and they say hey i do not believe that jesus literally rose from the dead i think he died and stayed dead physically I do not believe that Mary got pregnant as a virgin. I think she got married from Joseph the old fashioned way, the way that we all got got pregnant. Uh, but but those things said, I am a Christian. And I consider myself a practicing Christian. Is that allowable to you? Is is, is yeah. Allowable? Yeah. So I don't have any control over that. What do you mean allowable? Like, would no. I allow that if I were in control? No. Some people say, look, if you don't take the if you don't take the virgin birth and or the resurrection literally you can't be a practicing christian there are people that believe ah okay i see what you're saying yeah um well i think that with the way christianity is in the world today everybody has kind of a there are a lot of common commonality between where people draw the line i would say that if you believe in god and so this is what I believe, hmm. and I consider myself a Christian. So I guess that's the standard I have. Uh, I, I do believe in God. I do believe in the sacrifices Jesus made. I don't know how it all happened. I know what the Bible says. I wasn't there. I choose to believe that the sacrifice happened and that I, I'm worth it and everybody can be worth it as long as they accept it. I don't know the nature of how that happened. <laughs> I don't know if what the people saw of the resurrection, it would be that materialistic understanding of body dead, mm. becoming body alive, mm. and then ascension. Mm. I I don't think you need to have a specific dogmatic, like, yes, he was a living organism, and then he proceeded into the state of a dead organism, and then he was buried, and then he rolled the rock out, and mm -hmm. like everybody saw this specific thing happening. Mm. The idea that you can have a God create something out of nothing, I don't know how to do that. I don't know the specific nature of nothingness to somethingness. And I don't think you need to have a complete comprehension of how the things happen. Because we've been talking about it. It's a religious idea. It's a belief. Mm -hmm. It's not something that you can prove with science. Mm -hmm. And I acknowledge that. I don't think that Christianity is provable by science. I know there are some Christians that do. Um, I, I just believe that God is real. Jesus was real. Sacrifice was real. Um, the idea of atonement and um, respecting that sacrifice and mm -hmm. engaging in an active relationship with God, I think that's not only what you should do, I think it's a good thing for you. I think that the manifestations of it historically have been both good and bad but which can be said about every religion mm -hmm. um and there's a good way to do it and a wrong way to do it like ultimately it's a religious conversation you have to be open to the idea to believe it and if you're not open to the idea then you won't believe it and for the christian who says that i don't think these things happened the way that they were said to have happened in mm -hmm. the bible mm -hmm. i would say man you should probably just like realize the difference between religion and science. Like you, you can read the stories and believe it literally, which some Christians do, mm -hmm. or you can kind of take <laughs> a Christian agnostic stance. I don't know. Like you, you can't scientifically explain a miracle. You mm -hmm. can find some evidence of miraculous things occurring. Um, 
I'm not a Catholic, but the, the incorruptible bodies of saints, like the way that they don't decompose normally, like there's probably a scientific like reasoning behind that. Maybe there is some treatment of the bodies. I don't know. But like there, there are things that we've yet to explain. And to define Christianity is, is basically beyond me. I, I know in my heart what I am, and I know that I believe so I, I'm, I'm comfortable with that, and um, Do you I don't carry feel like a, a forcing that idea of heaven and hell in your mind, or is this metaphorical no. for you? Um, well, literal, like tangible, literal, literal, as in when you die, you either go to heaven or you go to hell. Or purgatory. Um, purgatory. Yeah, I, I guess when I think about heaven and hell, I know this is probably not the Christian answer, and my my fiance would be upset with me, but. <laughs> Uh, like I think of hell in the fiction that I've experienced, the fiction that I've read, video mm. games, that kind of thing. Mm. And that's probably not what it's like. Um, nobody knows what it's like to be dead and what that experience is like. If it's felt in the same way that we feel things now, mm. I do think that there's something after. And I do think that, think and be believe that um, sort of like your, um, your, global no hu human spanning ideology of us against the the universe hmm. that being a sort of test for us i i kind of see my life and the lives of people as a test of them hmm. and if there is any reason behind our being here as opposed to nothing being here or something else being here it's to see what we do hmm. and i i've always felt of a little bit of a void, uh, didn't get raised spiritually, and being exposed to everything I did in California, um, the diversity there, and this is what speaks to my my spirituality, my soul, my belief in this mm. is it, it just makes the most sense to me. It's an completely an intuitive thing. I, I know I can't prove it. I can point to things that I think support it and kind of piece the puzzle together for you to the, you know, within the limits of my expressive ability. But at the end of the day, you believe or you don't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what makes America uh, such a wonderful experiment in terms of our actual constitution, uh, the freedom of religion. I met a guy one time from um, Saudi Arabia, and I asked him if there were any atheist in Saudi Arabia and he said no 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 and I thought to myself did this guy I, maybe I you know what I didn't ask him if they were atheists if there were gay people maybe I asked both I don't <laughs> I think it was the same tone either way the the point is that he would have told me or told me that there no there were no gays or there were no atheists when I and my classmates knew that of course there were they just couldn't say it right <laughs> yeah um, yeah of course there of course there are gay atheists in Saudi Arabia they just can't say that they're gay atheists and they can't practice they're they got to go to mosque they got to take a wife uh, they got to take a husband right they could be a gay I'm sure they're lesbian would be lesbians or, or if you want to call them oppressed yeah. lesbians in in Saudi Arabia but in America you can we, we want you to come out and say, I believe differently than my neighbors. But the things that you can't believe differently in America is you can't believe differently in civility and you can't believe differently in uh, the the sanctity of the individual. 
uh, and what that means for the propagation of the species, more or less. These are just the ideas that the founders um, car <laughs> carried through the Constitution, right? They're, it's largely Judeo-Christian. Um, but of course, there's some. I, I've actually got a book on the way uh, called. Gosh, I got to look it up. the The founding. It was about the philosophy of the founding fathers and how those uh, ideas were kind of an amalgam of all these other religious ideas that preceded them. But in America, we have the freedom of religion, which is say you can believe whatever you want, right? As long as you're peaceful and civil and allow your neighbor to believe what they want, uh, you have the freedom of worship, the freedom of religion, the freedom of practice what you want. And I think that's so gorgeous about us. Yeah, I I don't have a complete historical understanding of the Founding Fathers and their their ideals and stuff. I I sort of thought it was just to prevent the, uh, the inter-Christian religious wars that were <laughs> pretty recent that's, in history. That sounds... Yeah. Valid that sounds pretty plausible that to me. Yeah. yeah, that's why I got a book on the way. Because they they just <laughs> didn't have the they just didn't have the the people here to even like consider the option of a completely like like there were no, to my knowledge, there were no Buddhists coming over or Hindus. Um, I, I think their closest interaction with the uh, the the Muslim world after the founding was like the Barbary Wars. Yeah, yeah. Like I I don't think they had them trying to come over and live here yet. No, but they were no. trying to establish that foundation of like we're not going to we're not going to proceed about this country like that we're not going to allow religious wars we're going to have a you know a, yeah a, a framework that's kind of fair and even it's funny it makes me think of how an idea can be a beautiful idea even if it's first instantiation isn't perfect and so it makes me think of yeah. alcoholics anonymous it, in that when it was founded the founders wrote that what a wonderful diverse collection of people we are and when they wrote that they were all white christians <laughs> mm -hmm. right yeah but they yeah. really meant it right they really meant and, and, they meant bankers yeah, and what they were and thinking was like and mothers yeah. and teachers wow we're, we're a crazy bunch <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, their their uh their their frame of mind, their perspective on things compared to now. Like what would they say? It's it's an interesting thought. I think they'd come along cuz the point is that yes, what you know, diversity I, I guess I should take occasion to say that diversity <laughs> has incredible power, but diversity for diversity's sake is not a worthwhile goal. Right? I would agree with you yeah. on that. Yeah. Diversity is wonderful. We want diversity, but just forcing diversity because it's diverse and make it diverse. No, that's not the that's not the attitude we take. We need to be yeah. taking there because because diversity diversity I think is a outspring an outcome of robust individualism. So when you have mm. robust individualism, when you have a system of a set of rules that say, okay, these are the things that, these are the ways to play. You can't go outside the lines. You can't use your hands. And these are the lines where when the, only this person can use his hands. And these are the rules. Okay, now go play. That's when you get a wonderful game. Uh, it's You don't say, okay, the, the forward can touch the ball once and then the back person can touch the ball once and the ball has to touch every person once before it goes can even be shot at the goalie once. Uh, that's not going to be a fun hey. game. I mean, maybe you could make it a fun game. I don't know, but that doesn't sound fun to yeah. me. So when you say 
when when a lot of people on the American left say we need 12 percent of CEOs to be black, we need exactly 13 percent of billionaires to be black. We're just going to enforce racial quotas everywhere because that's going to make diversity. Uh, I think that's barking up a wrong tree in a bad way. I don't think that's how we really get there. Yeah, I definitely don't think so either. The the meritocratic solution or I like goal that that was something that was like a functioning functioning form of diversity. When you're when you're going it's like what you said earlier, we're going away from respect for competency. Right? I guess you were you were quoting uh, competence hierarchies from Jordan Peterson. Like if you're not prioritizing function and competency when you're selecting people for a task or a job, mm. you're you're going to choose them for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Yeah. This is yeah. the difference between equality and equity. Um, yes. I, yes. I push against the concept of equity every time I can get the opportunity. Uh, mm-hmm. And I push against it with the con- I just try to replace it with the concept of equality. Equity is equal outcome. Equality is equal opportunity. You have to leave space for individuals to behave as individuals. You have to leave space yes. for people to make choices. And then it's the best behaviors that we will reward. Um, that's the system we want. We don't want a system that says you have the right immutable characteristics. Therefore, you get the job. That's that's mm-hmm. that's not going to help anybody. No, it really won't. And the the reason or the justifications that we've used to get into that situation is um, equity being evidence, or I guess disparity being evidence of inequality. Hmm. And that's that's why they've done, like that's the reasoning they've used. Like we don't have this parity, this, um, this equitable outcome, therefore, things are inequality things are unequal mm. and like that's how they frame the conversation that's how they they push these things forward they they presuppose like oh everybody would obviously choose to be the ceo of a company if things were equal then there should be an equal number of them in those seats <laughs> I and that's not the that. choice that is part yeah, of what this underlying like, principle that's so wrong yeah like i i don't want to be a ceo yeah. i don't care how much money you make being a ceo you didn't want to be in science even though you found the material super interesting because you'd rather design a video game yep you'd rather create something uh more artistic and more meaningful to you and people do make those choices to have less material wealth. People fundamentally, whether they say it or not, I think people are ideological in nature. They're not all just like these brutal, deterministic, materialistic widgets in an economy. Like we're not an economic zone. We're people. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. we have a nation that's in a form of crisis right now, and it's not going to get better if you keep treating people like they're cogs in a machine. You can understand maybe the outcomes and the outputs of the quote unquote machine, but you can't let that dehumanize the components when they're they're not cogs. There are people who are suffering from the the systemic inequality thing. Like there yes, there are lots of people disadvantaged in this country, but the solutions that they're putting forth they're not fixing it like they're people. They're fixing it like it's just interchangeable pieces in a machine. Change out the carburetor, change out the alternator. 
Yeah, and we need to have it. Yeah, it, it just doesn't make any sense when you really look into it. They're completely. I, I really love the way you put that. They're completely overlooking individual choice. They're going, oh yep. well, of course, and, and and I guess, I guess I agree with this first part of it. They're they're saying, of course, a similar percentage of let's say Native Americans will want to be wildly materially prosperous as whites or as German descendants or as Asians. Of course, a similar percentage of of Hispanic people and those of Mexican descent, those of Cuban descent will want to be medical doctors as those of West Asian Indian descent. Right. This is and that on itself in its own isn't an unreasonable suspicion. Uh, I, I share that suspicion, to be absolutely honest. I share. I go, yeah, you know, it would make sense to me. that. It, but you have to give the people a chance to act those things out. What if it's the case that a smaller percentage of West Asians want to be medical doctors as opposed to East, East Asians? What if that's the case? We don't know that it's not. You have to give people the opportunity to act out their dreams. And I yep. think the best... I think the best motivator and something that our founding fathers were going after and something that the freedom fighters, Dr. King and his ilk were going after is individual freedom. Uh, you, mm. you want to give the power for every person to uh, have attentional autonomy. And the way that I describe this concept is uh, attentional autonomy is the ability to pay attention to whatever you want, whenever you want, for as long as you want. And so a good example is Bill Gates's daughter. Right. Bill, if Bill Gates's daughter decided tomorrow that she wanted to focus primarily on popsicle stick figurines and her YouTube channel, <laughs> she could do that for the rest of her life and have no problems, whether the YouTube channel succeeded or not. Right. She doesn't, need, okay, she yeah. doesn't need that task to live. She simply wants to do it. Uh, and that's that's the type of freedom that I think would serve us all if we could build a society that could extend that to everyone. What I'm going for uh, here in the States is a system that says, okay, we can guarantee uh, basic income. We can guarantee a basic shelter. That is a one, a tiny studio apartment. That's basically all I'm talking about. Electricity mm-hmm. and internet access and food. So if you, as a 25-year-old, and it starts at 25 in my estimation, not 18 like Andrew Yang says, I started at 25. If you, as a 25-year-old, say, I want to read all about the history of the Antarctic penguins and do nothing else with my time. That's all I want to do is just read about that. And I don't even want to contribute. I don't want to write on it. (laughs) I don't want to go to school for it. I just want to read about it on Wikipedia and then sleep in between. If that's what you want to do, here is an apartment. Here is Internet access. We'll guarantee your physical safety and your electricity while you do that thing. More power to you. Uh, That's Hmm. the type of society that I want. Keeping those basic benefits away explicitly away from luxury and i feel like a lot of people on the american left say okay yeah that's fine and make it a cotton bed and make it a decent running car and make it a smartphone and no 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 those are luxuries right those are luxuries those are not necessities what's necessary is that you be able to pay attention to whatever you want whenever you want you don't have the right to pay attention to satin sheets every night (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> There's no right to that. Uh, but we, right. we, I think we as a society could guarantee your physical safety. And from that, I would see 
that that would allow behavior to manifest front and center. When I look at the black community today, I see the biggest barrier to all the black people that I know that suffer economically. Their biggest barrier is themselves. And I'm a black person. And so I, I know tons of black people who are failing economically and their biggest. I'm going to say 99 percent. I can't even think of one whose biggest barrier isn't themselves. Now, mm. the question is, why is their biggest barrier themselves? Speaking for uh, ADOS, I can. And ADOS is American descendants of slaves, as opposed to recent black immigrants. Uh, when mm -hmm. you look at the economic data, recent black immigrants do much, much better than American descendants of slaves. Uh, if you're if your parents were Angolan or your parents were Nigerian and you just came over and you're first generation, you're much more likely to succeed under the typical American definition of success than an American than a black descendant of a slave. Uh, and mm -hmm. that's because we have a deep self-doubt that comes from generations of scarring and burning and lynching and redlining and mass incarceration and stereotyping and just explicit racism. All that stuff is built up on top of us such that now we carry it around in our own minds and hearts. And it's heartbreaking. I grew up there. It's heartbreaking to see. I can tell you a story that I learned while driving rideshare. So there was this uh, guy He got into the back of my car. And young guy, young 20 or late 20s, dressed in a suit, came, came from the airport, I think. Uh, I said, hey, what brings you to town? He says, oh, I'm a sales, I'm a regional sales representative for this company. I said, oh, that's cool. How'd you get into that? He said, well, about seven years ago, uh, I was working, not, it wasn't seven, actually. It was less than that, maybe four or five. I was working as a waiter at this restaurant. Uh, I was trying to be an actor uh, from this region, uh, this area and, uh, you know, trying to be an actor, but I was a waiter. And I had this patron uh, who I struck up a nice exchange with. And he said, you know what? Why don't you come do some sales for me? Uh, and of course, he didn't start out as a regional sales director, but he was just start off as a local salesman and he enjoyed it. He worked hard. And now when I met him, he was a regional sales director. White guy. Great story. I met a black guy. I picked him up in the hood uh, where I was driving him out to L.A. to this restaurant that I saw was French. And I said, is this a nice restaurant that I'm taking you to? He said, I can't afford to eat there. <laughs> I said, that's pretty cool. I said, so you've got an opportunity to rub elbows with some pretty uh, powerful people. Maybe you can make something happen. He said, nah. I said, what? He said, nah, not for, nah, can't do that. So this guy was keeping himself out the game mm. before he even got a chance to play. Simply by saying, nah, I can't do that. Not for me. And I think that's one of the most pernicious poisons in our community. We keep ourselves from playing. And we, we, we then we want people to champion our ability to play. That's what the freedom fighters fought for. Uh, they fought for equal opportunity. They fought for equality under the law because they didn't have that. They didn't even enjoy equality under the law. We have that today. And now we're going, okay, now it's equity. <laughs> you skipped yeah. over the choice. You can't skip yeah. over the choice. <laughs> yeah, that was... Uh... That's that's tragic. You you really do. I think it was was it Wayne Gretzky. You miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, I I certainly don't know how to fix that problem. That is, that's. Oof. Well, I mean, I think, if it took generations to get into it, it I don't know how you. I think this is how we fix it. Just by talking and putting that talk out on the public, because yeah, what, what I believe I believe I, I think the I think the legislation for racial equality is done. Um, we've legislated it to where it needs to be. 
uh, all people of all skin colors, all genders. I actually believe that uh, gender should be added to the Civil Rights Act. I'm for that at the moment. Uh, currently, mm. gender isn't on the Civil Rights Act. And so you're not protected under federal law by being someone who is of questionable gender to a, to a patron and say, you know what, I don't want to serve you based on your gender. That's currently not in the Civil Rights Act. Uh, and so I'm for adding that to say, you know what, you can't just because someone looks like a man in the face and they're dressed like a woman or the reverse, you can't reserve them. You can't refuse your service from them if you're a public facing enterprise. I'm for that. Um, but that's as far as we need to go. The outcomes, the economic outcomes that I see are mostly due to individual choice. Um, now, I guess we should talk about, it would be more fair to talk about network effects because mm -hmm. the, this young man that I was talking about that's counting himself out the game, why is he counting himself out? It's because of the people that he, that he knows, that they count themselves out. And he doesn't know anybody who, who has succeeded through grit and connections. He just doesn't know anybody who's done that. Um, another example I can use is... I, there's a black guy that I picked up in Beverly Hills, again, wearing a business suit. First thing he says to me is, hey, can I eat in the back of your car? And this guy was about 40. He said, hey, can I eat in the back of your car? Uh, I said, I'm on lunch and I don't have much time. I said, yeah, go at it, man. You're fine. He had a, a slight African accent, uh, maybe maybe Nigerian, but I, I couldn't place it. And so I said, what what do you, you know, what brings you to town? What are you doing? He says, oh, I'm a manager of two boutique hotels here in Beverly Hills, which I picked him up in Beverly Hills. He was wearing a very beautiful tailored suit. So that made sense. I said, oh, uh, that's great. I said, how'd you, how'd you get there? He said, well, when I was 22, I came to this country with nothing, uh, but I got a job as a doorman at one of the hotels and I worked my way up. And this guy was as dark a person as you're going to meet. And so Bam. that's just one, <laughs> one anecdotal example of how the explicit racism against color is no longer the most um, the most formidable barrier to progress. That's not to say that it's gone, right? I'm not saying that it's mm -hmm. gone. It's still there. And uh, and of what I'm saying is true for Los Angeles. I don't know what it's like in rural Alabama. It's I would assume mm -hmm. it's probably much worse as far as being an explicit barrier to success. Um, but if, from what I've seen, the most, so I guess I should say the most pernicious barrier in California isn't your skin color uh, anymore, especially for, for black Americans. I think it's for black descendants of slaves, I think it's self-doubt. And that's just what I see firsthand. Um, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly open to more examples of, of explicit skin color or gender racism holding people back. Uh, because as a good scientist, my beliefs are amenable to powerful evidence. <laughs> yeah. or, or, or I should say adjustable, right? You show me some good evidence yeah, and yeah. I'll change my views. That's fair. That's fair. That's, um, hmm. You know, with the, the ideas of individual choice, and then you've got a, a culture as it is that, I mean, it affects your choices. That's right. And then how do, how do individuals impact the culture to get it to change so that the choices are I mean, like you said, the recent immigrants, and I, I have a similar experience in the army too. Mm. There are many, uh, I've worked with several African, different African nations, people immigrating to the service and then performing well in the army. Mm. Uh, most of them were pretty fit, uh, which is necessary in the army. Um, they're willing to work and 
like I, I noticed a difference too between, uh, I don't know if these American blacks were descended of slaves or maybe they were second or third generation, but like I noticed a difference in, in how they carried themselves and how they performed inside the army. Mm. Uh, I never really put it to words though. And that, that makes it more real that it's like, it matches up with what I've experienced too. A lot of the, uh, they, they were they were more like a mover and a shaker, like mm. a like they, they're willing to hustle for a little bit extra, and mm. like it paid off. They got they got promoted uh, when they performed well. They, yeah, that's that's super yep. fascinating. And then, and then and then when you have that in front of your face, and then you're you're told like, no, we need to strive for this um, equity of outcome for everyone. And <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know that I don't know how to change that. I am so I I'm concerned. I'm seriously concerned that if we don't continuously loudly, thoughtfully, carefully speak up against this push for equity, that these lazy people, it's intellectually arguing for equity is intellectually lazy. If mm-hmm. these people, they will win power and they will just police our speech while they sit in. They will just, they will just, issue in uh bullshit was it bolshevik communism I, I don't know exactly what type of communism it was in russia where they just told people what to say and they just had had monitors in every house you probably know more about it than i do but yeah that's that's all right that's what they yeah. that's what they want right and they, they don't know that that's what they want but that's exactly what they're pushing for is they're pushing mm-hmm. for this state where they decide everything top down uh simply because they are the anti-racist and they they've decided <laughs> That it's they have the moral authority. Yeah, they have the moral yeah. authority, and it's this, mm-hmm. this, 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 and this, and this, and this. Um, and if we don't speak up against this lazy intellectual movement, then it that it will win power, uh, and that not enough people will become courageous enough to say, you know what? No, choice matters. Why don't you do better, right? Why don't Why don't you? And then and then we will celebrate you. Um, yeah, just to just behave better. Uh, and then we'll, we, our culture is basically functional. Something can be said for the distribution of, gro- of runaway we- capitalism, the way it constitutes wealth at the top, but that's not a color <laughs> issue. <laughs> that's not racism no. that made Jeff no. Bezos a, a trillionaire. Right? That's yeah. not racism. Yeah, that's uh, economic and class right there. Yeah. That's not race. And that, that's a, I feel like that's where the discussion on race has come to in this country. Like it's no longer about what they say they're about it's it's just a weapon and this is something that i struggle with on the the idea of individualism Hmm. is that a nation of where the elites perceive the common man as a cog Hmm. not human like not worth the consideration that they give to themselves or their peers us being isolated is advantageous to them because it's far easier to appease sev- like many individuals with material like pittance than it is to a unified group who has an ideology in common something that binds them together against all that money like all that influence all that power all the people that they can buy off at the top so that they can pay less to the people at the bottom mm-hmm. Like I, I think there there needs to be a bridge between that absolute individualism, which I know is a, a common theme with uh, 
Jordan Peterson and a lot of the other influential people who work on self-development, which is a good thing, mm. but you can't you can't have a functioning like you can't get to your goal. It, it's like playing a sport to go back to your other analogy. If you're playing that sport and it's got the rules and it's a one-on-one -on -one game, but the other the opponent is like a team. Mm -hmm. Like you can't mm -hmm. you can't match that. Like I can be really good at soccer, but if it's just me on my team and they've got a full field, like <laughs> what, what can I do, right? Yeah, they're going to run I, circles out of me. I'm going to get tired about, right away. You're talking about so you're talking about so the the rich say the rich say to the common, hey, let's play tennis, right? Let's play me yeah. versus you tennis, and you go okay, you common person, you go out there with your ten, tennis racket, and then the rich person shows up with five tennis pros and puts them all on the same side of the court, and they're sitting off to the yep. side. What? Yeah. <laughs> exactly what? right. Yeah. So they <laughs> that that's yeah that's a perfect analogy, man. Like they they get you to take the individualism to an extreme that's basically unreasonable like yes there there is a place for individuality and we've all i think at least you and me have agreed that that's important a lot of those goals contribute to that better society that we're talking about but if you isolate people down to like core individual units it's just going to make it even easier for them to shuffle us around like like that's widgets right. widgets in their economic zone that's right. And that's what I think basic income this and this idea for attentional autonomy, one of the most yeah. powerful mechanisms inside of it that I've argued for is that it gives or let's say, yeah, let's say that it gives individuals. It creates kind of a collect a common. It creates kind of a union of the citizen. You know how, you know how there are iron workers unions and there are steel workers yeah. unions and there are actors unions. Well, there's a basic income would create kind of a citizens union where by having a basic income, I don't actually have to sell my attention to anyone to live. And that would be such a powerful force against this phenomenon that you're talking about. Because under the current paradigm, if I'm operating uh, a business and I need some local, let's say, uh, computer programmer, then I know that that same computer programmer has to take a job from someone in the relatively close region. I guess the age of information, that's not true anymore. But so but let's say it's a, a carpenter. I know as a business that carpenter has to take a job from somebody local where he can transport his skills to. So I only have to compete with the other people hiring carpenters for wages because he's going to take probably the highest one or the closest one or something like this. If this carpenter could stay home, now I have to compete with the phenomenon of his desire to stay home. And so <laughs> it, here, here comes a new challenger. And that's a great, yep. that's the best challenger. Because then if I don't have to take your corporate job in or, or your, if I don't have to take your pittance in order to feed myself and my kids, then you have to woo me. And that's what we want in a robust capitalist system employees who are ultimately the sources of value need to be wooed and they have to be wooed with nice wages, nice benefits, a nice kitchen, right? It's something worth more than me just kicking it at the house. That's how you get me through the door. You pay me enough and you give me enough benefits to where I want to go. Uh, and mm -hmm. then we'll get a work system. <clears throat> now there are, there are some, some side effects of this. For instance, this would put way downward pressure on desirable jobs like this graphic artists and low-level computer programmer things that are desirable 
it would put crazy downward pressure on those because there'd be people just clamoring to go do them. Uh, and then you don't have to pay anyone anyone because they could all stay home. You all want to do it. I don't really have to. So you're, a lot of volunteers would be going around here. But mm-hmm. it would put way upward pressure on house cleaner, garbage collector, right? Somebody who could just stay home, right? Why would I go get stinky all day when I could just kick it at the house? Well, and yeah, so then you got to pay me more, and that put, puts pressure on the city. There's a lot to be said about the, the the pressures, the economic pressures. But at the end of the day, I think it's a win for the common because it prevents these multinationals from being able to say, "You, Mister, would be cash register operator, operator, are an individual, and it's you versus me in a one-on-one game." I'm an I'm a corporation, so I'm an individual too, and it's you versus me, one versus one. Nobody can win that. <laughs> yeah that's that's true and that's another that's an interesting aspect of the the ubi and that uh in attentional not intentional attentional freedom that Mm. you were talking about Mm. yeah that that would completely change the labor market of course you'd have to interfere with the uh the ability of capital to import labor or export work but i think that could be done as well. I mean, protectionist economic policies have been tried and worked. I mean, they're, they're working in China right now. Mm. And like, that's something we could do if we had the, I mean, <laughs> I think we have politically like the stomach, the will for it. We just don't have the means to express our will politically. And then yeah. we come back to that problem again. How do we get them to do what we want and what is best for us? Thanks to Andrew Yang, man. He really broke it open. I was a person who I had support. I supported basic income as an idea uh, before I ever heard of Andrew Yang. I just didn't think that it was even possible to become a political reality within my lifetime. That's the way I thought of it. I thought of it as a thing that might happen for my grandkids, maybe. Uh, but I didn't think it was a thing that could happen for me. But then he stepped on the scene and said, you know what? No, basic income right now. <laughs> I thought, yeah. was, I thought it was just going to be guy standing and then he was going to pass the torch to some person and then he was going to pass the torch to some person. But uh, mm-hmm. no, Andrew Yang said, no, let's do this. Let's get this done. Uh, so yeah. I'm so grateful to him for doing that. I, I am also grateful for him for actually bringing that up in the com- – like entering that into the political conversation even though <laughs> that wasn't – that was not what they wanted. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. They, they that- don't want us to – there's a – there's a, a what what would you call this a way of thinking about division I don't know but it's an it's an Indian idea and it separates societies into the worker warriors priests and merchants and so there oh are you talking about like um, subcontinental Indians like the caste system no no not the caste system. Uh, so this oh. comes from, I believe it's, I believe it's Hindu. I'm not exactly certain, but it's just a way of thinking about how society naturally kind of segments itself. Mm. Not not hard line segments, but just general categories. And it was warrior, merchant, priest, and worker. And that the warriors, the merchants, and the priests are the ones out doing what they would do, right? And then the workers can be fluid can you know you can work for a warrior one day and then go or one year and then go work for a merchant the next year and then go work for a priest the next year if they have a work if they need a workforce and their priestly things um and this is just a way of thinking about division and and i've actually adopted it because i think that that worker group that common group 
is the central heart of our species that we have to protect. If we as a species lose the priests, new priests will come from the common. If we lose the warriors and the merchants, new priests and new warriors will come from the common. If we lose the common, we lose it all. And so we have to protect the common and that and and I think we need to celebrate people who say, I want to exchange a bit of my attention for someone else's vision and then I want to go home. And I don't and I don't want massive wealth. I want to be I think we need to celebrate people who want to be in the middle because we are animals. And the way that bison and zebras stay alive is by being in the middle. We have that instinct and our culture fails to celebrate the instinct to be in the middle. It, it, it derides it. It says, oh, you want to be in the middle? <laughs> Come work for me, <laughs> right? Go make a billion dollars. Huh? You want to be in the middle? No, it, it's, it's so yeah. our, our, our culture is so jerkish to people who want to be in the middle. Uh, and that's we need to make statues of people who want to be in the middle. Uh, and this <laughs> is what the communists kind of mo- gestured towards, but obviously they failed in their application. <laughs> <laughs> and they still talk about the middle class here in America too, we and do. like, yeah. I mean, they don't do much, but they talk about it. We talk about it. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I think a, a basic income and a program that mm-hmm. aims at attentional autonomy would celebrate. Actually, put the middle front and center. It'll say, Look, "Oh yeah, you're free. You don't have to sell your attention. You're a common person. You're abiding by the law. You're free." Uh, and mm-hmm. then I think society will will spring so beautifully from that um yeah yeah Yeah, i mean definitely sounds better than what we got now i can tell you that (laughs) that the the idea i don't know uh like you said you you weren't really sure where you got it from but the uh the structure of that society in the different roles that people play within it it reminded me a lot of plato's republic Mm. and the uh the different souls of people I, i think he he developed he like there was like the the bronze, the silver, and the gold soul, and then the different mm. levels of society would be developed. So he kind of incorporated a natural quality of people. Mm. So like a meritocratic element, like mm. you're going to have some people who are more competent at things than others, and those should be the ones that make the the important or like not. I, I don't want to downplay the importance of like a farmer or somebody like in the middle like us but like the the decisions that require higher level thinking should Mm. be done by people with a higher level thinking capacity beyond average like Mm. the the best people should be doing that and the people who are would excel at a a trade or crafts they should be doing trades and crafts like they they kind of split things up that way and i think you see a division of society kind of just everywhere there was a functioning society like you have to do that to perpetuate yourself as a society mm. and if you're if you're not doing it then you're just going to fall apart anyway there goes your society you know what and it just occurred to me that i committed the very thing that i just complained about at the beginning of this conversation so well, what did you do when i told the story of the enuma elish I said that the comment that the EGG asked themselves, why can't we defeat Tiamat? And then they got drunk and lazy and said, oh, let Marduk do it. That was a denigration <laughs> of the EGG. And I shouldn't have done that. I yeah, need, so I, I mean, sometimes you want wine and bread. Yeah, I need to figure out how to tell that story that celebrates the EGG. That's funny. <laughs>
Uh, well, I think on that note, I need to get back to uh, my chores. You're good. You're good. What would you yeah, want to say? Uh, thank you so much for coming on. No problem. No what problem. would you want to say to the young men and women out there and non-binary out there and saying, <laughs> how do I make two cents of the world? What would you want to say to them if you haven't already said it? Ooh, so you want something punchy, not something like maybe develop your critical thinking ability and read history and read the classics and stuff like that. That's exactly it's just what a, I want. Develop your yeah, ability, you want, read the classics. That's no. Well, that, that's like the, the common sense answer is like before you attempt to engage with the world at a higher level, at a deeper level, you're going to need to cultivate your <laughs> perfect, perfect timing of the doorbell. You're going to need to cultivate yourself and increase your ability to do those things. Did that come through okay? It came through great. <laughs> yeah. Responsibilities. All call. right. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta get these dogs, man. I'll, I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you some other time, okay? We'll do it again. Yeah. All, All right. right. Talk to you later, man. Bye. Bye.